Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest, I'd like to share that both this podcast and the community I started in 2021 called The Iconic Journey in CRE is now part of a new nonprofit organization with that same name. The new company will offer opportunities for sponsorship to grow the community both in membership and in programs. It also allows you as listeners to show your appreciation for this podcast, which has delivered episodes twice monthly since August 2019 with a charitable contribution. Transitioning the community and podcast into the nonprofit organization is underway. The community, which is open to commercial real estate professionals between the ages of 25 and 40 years old, is currently up to 65 members and growing. If you would like to learn more about either joining the community or contributing to the podcast, please reach out directly to me at john at coenterprises, C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com. Separately, my private company, Coenterprises, now will focus only on advisory work for early stage real estate firms and career counseling. If you have interest in learning more about its services, please review my website at coenterprises.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. I'm so pleased to welcome my guest for today's show, who is Art Fusillo. Art is executive vice president and one of the leaders of development over the years for Learner Enterprises, which is perhaps the largest private development firm in the region. He began his career in 1981 as general counsel and then moved into becoming one of the leaders of the development group, primarily in retail properties. Art is clearly one of the primary voices advocating for Learner in government, legal, and retail matters over the past 40 years. Art was raised in Long Island as the grandson of immigrants who started a fuel oil business in the 1930s. He started working there as a kid really early on and learned the value of hard work and hands-on, which is kind of his motto. (laughs) He talks about that. But Art always wanted to be a lawyer. At nine years old, he said, that's what I want to do. And so he aimed his educational career in that direction. So went to Villanova, didn't really know why he went there. He just guided that way. And then went on to Catholic University Law School because he wanted to be in the the Washington, D.C. area. He wanted that was kind of a place he wanted to be. So he did that, went to Catholic. Then he got to Georgetown and got his master's in law legal work uh, for tax law, I should say. 
Then he went into practice for about a year, year and a half, and decided the law practice was not what he wanted to do. So then he joined Sidney Brown, a longtime developer in the Washington area in retail, stayed there a couple of years and realized that maybe there's a better opportunity out there. And he heard about the opportunity with Learner Enterprises and joined them in 1981 as general counsel and talks about that and the whole process. Art relishes intelligence, humility, and kindness in his interactions with others. He feels he was blessed, and we have a eulogy that I'm going to share in the show notes, a link to, that he gave about Ted Lerner, who passed away in February this year, about his, what he calls his ultimate mentor, who gave him chills in a good way almost every time he walked into his office. So he feels he was blessed and he never could have had the opportunities elsewhere that he got at Lerner to do what he was able to do over the last 42 years and wants to stay doing it until he's in a wheelchair at 95, he said. So art is something. He's a character and it has been a lot of fun to, to talk to him. And those of you who know art know what I mean. So I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Art Fusillo. Thank you, Art, for joining me. Um, I've overviewed your background in the introduction. Um, You recently wrote a eulogy for your mentor, the legendary developer Ted Lerner, who passed away earlier this year, for whom you worked for 42 years at Lerner Enterprises. I will reference this in our conversation along with more details about your career. However, first... Tell us a little bit about your origins, youth, and parental influences, Art. Well, first of all, thank you, John, for interviewing me. You're very kind. Uh, I know this is called Icons of Real Estate, but I'm the furthest thing from an icon. But (laughs) it's very nice of you. Maybe I've been in the business a long time. You might say old people in your... You're iconic. Old old people (laughs) in... you're iconic. You're very kind. You're very kind. You've always been very kind and and very nice to, to have done business with over the years. I have been in real estate, I guess one might say, for about 45, 46 years. So if I can impart any of, of what I've learned in this conversation, I, I thank you for asking. I appreciate it. And um, I by no means consider myself top of the food chain, but I've had some wonderful experiences. And thank you very much up front for, for, for asking me. I grew up on, on Long Island in, in a town called Patchogue. I was on the, on the water on the south shore of Long Island. I was born into an Italian Catholic family. My grandparents uh, had come over from Italy, at least my, my grandfather had. My grandmother was actually born here after the family mm-hmm. had come from Italy. I grew up next to my grandfather uh, and grandmother at house until I was nine years old. So I was influenced early on by my grandfather. He had a garden in the back and we went fishing almost uh, every day, dragging dragging nets for bait and then going out and catching fish. So what did they do when they came over from Italy? So it's a great question. It was, my grandfather came over in 1909. He ended up living in New York City. And one summer day, he he went out with a friend to visit a friend's cousin or something in Mm -hmm. Patchogue and met my then, I guess, 17-year-old grandmother. He immediately fell in love in those days. They wouldn't see each other that much, but they would write love letters every day. And we still have those love letters. Really? Yeah, I still have the love letters that my grandfather wrote <laughs> to my grandmother. Cool. He was 10 years older than she was. At 18 years old, they got married. And, and as I've said 
just before I wrote the Fusillo family cookbook, which is a history of uh, our family along with recipes that the family have put together. And, and it was fun for me because it really, it was really something to go back and look at the history of how they got started in America. Here's a couple that comes together, 1828. They live in a town on the south shore of Long Island, Patchogue. They uh, don't have any money. It's the Depression. Uh, my grandmother actually went to a neighbor and asked if uh, the neighbor was going to use a 275-gallon oil truck, excuse me, 275-gallon oil tank laying on the floor and uh, laying on the ground in the, in the gentleman's yard. And he said, no, no, I'm not going to use that. She said, well, would you mind if I borrowed that? And he says, sure, whatever we're going to borrow. So she took this 275-gallon tank, if you've ever seen him on the side of a house, and she went to a cousin who had a truck, and she put the tank on the back of the truck. Really? And she went into her husband, who was out of a job, didn't have any money, I guess in those years, 1933, they had already had four kids and, and she was an entrepreneur. She, she was selling shirts that she was getting shipped in. She had a, a hot dog and hamburger stand by a beach that she was selling. I mean, she was a go-getter, my, my grandmother. She was really the matriarch of the family. My grandfather was a guy who loved to tend to his garden and go fishing and enjoy life. And here was my grandmother, who was a real go-getter. In any event, she said to her old, her second oldest daughter, get on the truck with your father and go to this little area in town and knock on doors and see if they want to buy kerosene and fill up the tanks of kerosene. That's how they lit their lights in the house. So from that humble beginning, my grandfather and then my father built up a fuel oil business really? that we all prospered from when I was growing up. So I grew up really at a young age working in the fuel oil business, home heating oil business. And by 16 years old, I was driving a truck delivering home heating oil. I could still fix an oil burner to this day. I grew up in the trades, had tools. My father would go out on service calls two o'clock in the morning and I'd go with him. So from those humble beginnings of my grandmother, who was an entrepreneur, we built Fusilla Oil on Long Island. And then my two brothers went in the business. They built up companies and sold them. And now after over 100, I guess, after over 75 years, we were out of the business and sold, sold the business. So I grew up in, in an environment that was very hands-on. It was trades. It was working hard. I never really, when there was a day off at school, I wouldn't uh, ever have that day off. My father would have me working on a truck or going out with the servicemen doing cleanings. On the, uh, and so we really never, the memory I have of the fuel oil business or growing up is that I really never had a Christmas vacation or an Easter vacation or a day off on Columbus day or whatever the holiday was. Because if the day, if we had the day off, we were working in the family business. In the summertime? In the summertime. Well, certainly not as a young boy, not, not as nine, 10, 11, 12, but when I got to six, well, it's a little, it's a kind of a funny story. One, <laughs> One of the things that I did as I got older in the summers was I was a clammer. So I had a boat. So I would go out and I would jump in the water with my hands and feet. And I actually was very prosperous at it. I, I would dig three bushels of clams a day, come to the dock, put the clams up on the dock and get $18 a bushel. In those days, $17 a bushel. 
So I did that for about six or seven summers during college and not law school, but during college and, and high school. But there were times where I would go on the service truck and do cleanings, which was a, just a horrible job in the summer because you're full of soot and all kinds oh. of dirt and it's 90 degrees. And it was, but all of that is meant to say that I grew up in a very middle-class, hardworking, hands-on family enterprise, which I have always felt gave me tremendous tools in my toolbox to then do what I was going to do for the rest of my life. So if you ask me what about my youth in that environment, I remember the most. I, I remember, and this is going to sound a little odd, but I, I, start, I, I was fortunate enough to learn early on to think like an owner. And I'd see my father come home and struggle with payroll, and I'd see him come home and be happy if something happened that was positive at work. And he would put me on the trucks in the winter to teach new drivers. And I was 16, I was 15, 16 years old. I started working the trucks when I was 12, but I was 15, <laughs> 16 years old going out on the oil trucks with new drivers explaining to them how to deliver oil from this truck to somebody's home. And I'd get out of the truck and I'd show them the power takeoff and I'd show them how to put the tickets in. I'd show them how to pull the hose. I'd show them how to listen to the whistle. I'd show them how to shut it off, retract the hose, print the ticket, drop it off at the door, bring it back. And then when we used to go to the, we used to go to the, to the water because all the tankers would come in and they would load up the storage facilities. I'd show them how to fill up a 3,200 gallon truck with oil to then go out and deliver it to the homes. So early on, that experience of leading and helping and working and going out with my dad and watching him interact with people, serving people, because it was a service business. You didn't get customers to buy your oil unless you were serving them and making sure they were happy with your service. Oil burning goes out in the middle of the night. You're in the car. You're going there. You're fixing it. So as time went on, the company got bigger. My father hired people. But I think... The influences from my grandmother and then, and then my father, who was, his, was her son, and then all their brothers and sisters were all hard workers. I, I joke, and I say this jokingly, but it's probably more true than it's not. I think I'm the first Fusillo to work for anybody in my whole life, in the history of our family, because they were all entrepreneurs. They were Everybody who I knew, every aunt and uncle, everybody in that Fusillo line were hardworking people who had their own businesses, their own companies. So one of the things I brought to Learner, I think, a long, long time ago was the idea that you work 24-7, that you never stop working, that you, you think like an owner. You, 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 you make sure that you're putting in what's necessary, and it's really a 24-hour, 7-day-a-week work ethic. So that's what I learned. And... And the skill set, which is going to be a little interesting, I think, to you in the sense that the skill set was very hands-on. So I always wanted to be a hands-on developer. You know, that was as I got older, I wanted to have dirty boots. I, I, I go through suits. I go through jackets. I, I just can't. There's no reason for me to have nice clothes because I'm constantly doing something. Have you ever read Titan by John D. Rockefeller? No. It's good About book. him. Yeah. Ron, Ron Sherlock. John D. Rockefeller was in the oil business, as you probably 
Yeah, the real oil business. That yeah. was the yeah the but creation before Steve, before they used you know real yeah. oil. It was kerosene, mm -hmm. and he talks about in 1870 he started the company. Yeah, he's in boots. Yeah, shoveling oil. Yeah, at this in in the book, and, and your story just reminds me of that. Oh yeah. Well, I can tell you stories, John. Exactly. So just let me give you a story. I'm at college. I'm, 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 I'm in college in the early 70s, 71 to 75. And I get a phone call from my dad. It's the oil crisis. People can't get oil, can't get gas. Yes, yeah. can't get oil, can't right. get gas. Right. So my dad calls me up and says, you got to come home and help me. So I leave Philadelphia, Villanova, and I get in the car and I come home, leave college. It wasn't for a long time. It was for a week or so to come help him save the company oh my God. while he, because he couldn't get oil. Oil wasn't coming in. So what my father did was, he was always just so bright and still alive, 96. And he had found in a neighboring town, an old storage tank. And it was a, one was a, I guess about a 50 foot tall tank, then had three small round tanks. And he says, I've just contracted with, the owner of these to 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 use them, but we have to we have to repair them because they haven't been used in thirty years. So sure enough, if we don't spend the whole week, and <laughs> and one of the things he did was he got a got a ladder, put a ladder down the down the top hole of the tank, gave me a handkerchief, and said, "Go down there and and take a hose." And let's start cleaning out the inside of this tank. So I was in there with so much rust and soot and everything around me. I couldn't even see ahead of me shoveling dust and dirt out of this tank to get these tanks functional to save his company. So there have been, I have countless stories like that of my father. You know, you said, I'm going to write a book and the book's going to be expressions my father taught. That's awesome. And he taught me so many things. And one of them was, don't be afraid to get your hands dirty. I guess and not. that's, that's the way it was. So that work ethic of, uh, my grandmother, my, my aunts and uncles, uh, my father and my mother, who was very bright and worked. You have constantly. a picture of you and your dad, you know, when you're with like a Fusillo. You'll see it. You'll see it in the Fusillo family the cookbook. Okay. Yeah. I want to put that. Up. Yeah. You'll see it. I, in have the to, I have to have that picture. Oh, you'll see it. Yeah. <laughs> you'll see it in there. Yeah. You'll see it in there. That was so. So so. When you go back to my grandparents and, and and my parents and those influences, now have I been successful at that with my own four children? You know the answer is probably not. It's interesting how you 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 reflect back on the you reflect back on those times and 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 they're not always in your mind the best thing for me to have been doing at the time. I was an athlete, but I really couldn't develop better as an athlete because I was working, but my parents didn't know any better. My To my parents' way of thinking was they grew up in an environment that was working all the time. You, their children would grow up in an environment that was working all the time. Me, I tried to give my children a balance. I tried to teach them how to work hard, but also to how to, how to maybe excel at things. And fortunately for me, they all went on to play college uh, sports. And we're very good at what they did. And they all work extremely hard right now uh, in their in their respective fields. 
which I think is a reflection of hopefully the balance and sure. watching their father and watching their grandfather and watching their aunts and uncles. Right. So when they do a podcast like this someday, maybe they'll reflect on that. That's you know? what I Yeah. So, so yeah, so that was a, I, I, I guess I was lucky. I mean, I was very, very lucky. Uh, we would never, we couldn't, we, I could, we could never, we could never, not never, I couldn't say never. 90% of the time, you never called somebody to fix something. If the toilet was broken, if the, you had no heat, if the car broke down, if there was electricity that was an issue, you had to fix it. That was the problem. If your transmission needed to be replaced in your car, you needed to go to a junkyard, find a transmission that fits your car, bring it home, jack up your car, put in a new transmission, and, because that's what you did. And, and to this day, I'm constantly fixing toilets at various places, my home and, and my other places, or if there's electrical sockets that got to be replaced, or if there's a post that got to be put in. I am still a very hands-on, I'll fix it, I'll figure it out. I'll figure out the problem kind of guy. In fact, just recently, we couldn't get hot water out of this one faucet in the kitchen and just couldn't figure out how to do it. And, and I just said, this is so illogical because the water line's coming in. It's hot on the bottom. I can't get the hot out of the top of the faucet. It must be a clog. I can't find the clog. The water seems to have. Anyway, make a long story short, I called up the company in the service and they said, well, you have to back flush it. And I said, I've been back flushing it. I'm so damn mad. Because I'm back flushing it. And I'm telling, yelling at the guy. And I'm yelling at the guy on the phone. There's something wrong with the faucet. You got to send me a new faucet. I'm back flushing it. He goes, sir, I'm telling you, you just got to back flush it. And I'm just so mad because I've been doing it, working on it for five hours. And I'm doing it. So finally, I finally go back up. I said, okay, fine. This is wrong. I'm going to take the damn thing out, put another thing. Anyway, long story short, let me try back flushing it one more time. I put it in, I back flush it. Out comes a clog, like a piece of chalk. I went, oh my God, the guy was right. So, you know, there was satisfaction in fixing it. So I always have to go, but I I would do that myself. I I really just felt, and maybe that's the hands-on experience that Ted gave me here. I mean, he gave me the ability to do anything I wanted, which we'll get into. But certainly, I had a wealth of uh, a wealth. Sense of what I'm hearing is that you have a lot of patience to put put up with things, to be able to go through. And to me, what I've learned about developers is that they see something and they have a vision for it, and they don't quit. They just keep going, and they keep going, and they oh, don't yeah. stop. Especially if it tortures you, they just keep going. Yeah, like it's tortured. Like this past weekend, I couldn't get the. I couldn't get the cable to work at a little townhouse we yeah. have in Bethany. Right. I spent five hours replacing every part <laughs> in the dam, in the darn thing. They're just replacing every part all the way out to the pole. I was, I was basically trying to climb up the pole to figure out how I was going to replace it. Because you are, and my father used to have an expression, you have to understand the theory of the thing. Uh, he was an engineer. He had gone to uh, Kings Point Merchant Marine Academy. He was on an oil tanker really? during the war. And he was an officer because he was on, went to Kings Point, got an appointment to Kings Point. He didn't finish it because he came back and went into the oil business with his father. But we've just discovered all the letters, maybe not all of them, but most of the letters that he wrote from the ship at 18 years old back to his family. They were discovered in a box. So I must have 50 letters 
that he wrote at 18 years, 17 and 18 years old, while on a ship going to Amsterdam and Cuba and parts of the Mediterranean on an oil tanker. And I just read them to him. He's 96 years old. So I sat there and read all of them. Whoa. And I said, Dad, now that you're now that you're 96, looking back on your 18-year-old self, what what did you learn from me reading those letters? And I learned a lot too, quite frankly. Quite frankly, he said, I learned how homesick I was because he was incredibly homesick. But he almost wrote a letter every couple of days back to his mother and father, telling his dad he was going to come back and help him in the oil business. And dad, keep it going because I'll be back. And I'll help you. And he was the youngest of four. So that was absolutely precious to, that was absolutely precious to, to read to him. So he, he was a worker. And my, I want to talk about my mother, but her side of the family, what business were they in? The oil business. And my mother and father had the same birthday, same day, same year. And then my brother was born on that same day. So we would celebrate right. three birthdays. Wow. My brother was born in 55. They were born in 27. My mother since passed away. But we would have three birthdays on March 27th. And that was a big day in the family. But my mother was very bright, extremely bright. Um, a hard worker, extremely bright. Her father was in the oil business. So both families on both sides, my mother's family and my father's family, were in the fuel oil business. And uh, my grandfather on my mother's side was a very hardworking guy as well. He was from Italy. And uh, my grandmother. So you're 100% Italian. She was sent over. She was in an arranged marriage from the town. And then they had my mother who was extremely bright. And just, she would read incessantly. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's where, if I have any book smarts, it came from my mother and my father taught me how to use tools and how to work at fixing something or dedicating and just hard work. But my mother was constantly, she had, you know, she was the one who had saved things. We have, we have books that go back to the 1700s. I mean, she, she just, she just was a saver. She was a reader. Did she go to college? She didn't. She got out of uh, high school, did a year at Queens College in Middle Village, New York, Corona area where they were from. And she went to one year and then got out and went into the oil business to help her father and mother. It's funny, a little side story, because this is a great history book as well for generations of my family to listen to. When I met my wife, I, I, not, too, not too long after I met her father, who happened to, they lived in Bowie, Maryland. And in passing, he said to me, he grew up in Corona, Queens. I said, wow, Corona, Queens. I have relatives in Corona, Queens. He goes, oh, wow. Well, my, my best friend was Charlie DeMarzo. I was in Charlie DeMarzo's wedding. I go, my mother's Connie DeMarzo. That's her cousin. Oh, my God. So we pull out a wedding book, and there's, there's her father, in Charlie DeMarzo's wedding with my mother. Oh my God. In that small world. Yeah. And then to add that to, then when he came back, when her father came back from the war, he stayed at Charlie DeMarzo's sister's house and played with a one year old, two year old baby on the floor who grew up to be a priest and married my wife and myself. So that's an interesting story, small interesting world. twist. But that whole history of my family, thanks for bringing it up. They're a bunch of hardworking people, they love to eat. Every Sunday at one o'clock, one thirty, people would come over the house. Every Sunday, it was either aunts and uncles or family members, cousins, 
and we would sit around the table and we would have a big Sunday dinner every single Sunday. That tradition's gone now. I mean, I, we don't have it in our family, but you knew at 1.30 on a Sunday where you were going to be, and then you stumbled to the couch around 3.30 and you'd watch golf until it was over. So I actually, I, my... It's funny, I don't know if this works for you, but my rest period is around four o'clock on Sunday. My mind seems to shut down from four o'clock to nine o'clock, literally just because of that time period and that training as a child, that that was sort of the downtime of my week. I realized that as I got older. But that tradition of that Sunday dinner has not been carried on, but we would do it every Sunday when my grandparents would come over and uh, we would do that. So you mentioned Villanova. So talk about your academic. Yeah, so I went to Seton Hall High School on Long Island, which was a, a town, a, a local Catholic high school. Uh, we had a great football team. Is that in Nassau County? That was in Suffolk County. Suffolk, yeah, okay. right there. In fact, it was. I used to walk to school. Uh-huh. It was a, a mile or two from my house, and I went went to Catholic school, Catholic high school, Catholic elementary school, Catholic Catholic high school, and I went in one day to the to the person who helped you get in, you know, figure out colleges. And I sat down and the nun said to me, I think you'd be perfect for Villanova. You're going to go to Villanova. <laughs> I didn't know. I was like, Ma- I didn't know what I was doing. Maris, my parents were not college graduates. Right. I, th- we were not focused on college. My, my parents were not, my, they were helping me, but they weren't, you know, they weren't not. Did they encourage you though? Oh, of course. It was always, I was going to college. There was no question I was going to college. In turn, in my household, we always discussed what graduate degree you were getting, not what college degree you were getting. I took it a step further. But for my parents, we were always going to college. There were four of us in the family. But what college was not ever discussed? Like, I worked with my children to figure out where they would be best suited and where they would go to school. And I was very lucky in the end results of that. Because they were very, they were bright and they were they were athletes and they worked hard, so they went to really fantastic schools. Um, for for me, it wasn't like that. It was really I, I didn't have any guidance, and you, but you went to the guidance counselor, and the guidance counselor said the woman said to me, "You're going to going over. Oh, you you should go to going over." So I applied, and fortunately, I don't even know. No one helped me with the application. No one helped me with the essay. No one even read anything. I just got an application and applied and. Fortunately, somehow I got in. I got in, and of all the schools I got in, it was the it was the best school. I think the tuition was forty five hundred dollars room and board tuition, and I went there. And I, I I immediately knew I wanted to be a political science major because I I knew I was going to law school. I, I was one of the fortunate ones. I've known I wanted to be a lawyer since I was nine years old. Really? Yeah. Even even doing the in the oil business. You know? Oh yeah yeah. I, I I knew I wanted to be an attorney. I. My brothers went into the oil business. I, not that I didn't think I would have been good in the oil business, but it was, believe it or not, I, I, at, there was a time I wanted to go into politics. And, and then I became class president and realized I needed, I did not want to be in any thankless job the rest of my life, which is what politics is. It's just a total thankless job. And so I, but early on, nine, when I was nine years old, I used to watch the Kennedy brothers on TV. And I saw Bobby Kennedy and I said, oh, my God, I want to be a lawyer just like Bobby Kennedy. And I want to be, see what John Kennedy's. I mean, they influenced me tremendously in those days. 
It was the early 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were 60, 61, 62. People don't remember those days, but I remember. I do. Right, and you do, exactly. <laughs> so I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. So when I was in high school, I knew I wanted to be a lawyer. And when I uh, went to Villanova, I knew day one that I wanted to go to law school. So I worked every single day in college toward that goal of going to law school. That meant the classes I selected, the work I did in those classes, the grades I got, graduated with a... And I knew I had to graduate with a high cumulative average because it was the cumulative average coming out of Villanova that was going to get me into a get me into a law school more than my LSATs. And sure enough, that 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 worked out. I graduated with a very high cumulative. And uh, made any good friends there? In Villanova? Yeah. Oh yeah, still have good friends from Villanova. In fact, I'm st- we were playing golf together in a couple of weeks, and one night up in New Jersey. Yeah, we we have a close knit. I just had a wedding. My daughter just got married. So I was able to invite a Villanova table of people that I wanted to have come to the... Oh, yeah, we have some great friends. There's a, a group of us that have stayed close. Did you like years. the Philadelphia area? I I really did like the Philadelphia area, but I I, I knew it was time for me to move on. I, I didn't yeah. want to settle there. Uh-huh. And when I was thinking of law schools, I said, Boston's too cold. I don't like the cold. New York's too crazy. I don't want to go back to New York City at the moment. <laughs> Um, Philadelphia, I'm done with Philadelphia. I've had the most magnificent experience in Philadelphia. Sure. I was dating somebody whose father was the head of the Republican Party, and he would take us around. I'd play golf at the most exclusive golf courses. I would. The main line is pretty nice. Oh, we had such a fantastic <laughs> time. His name was Billy, yeah. Billy Meehan, and he was a magnificent man, and he, he was a, a, a political leader, and he knew everybody. In fact, he's mentioned in a lot of books. But he's a wonderful guy, and the family was wonderful to me, absolutely wonderful to me. But, but I knew I wanted to leave Philadelphia. I was sort of moving on. And then I looked at Baltimore and said, I don't really have any interest in Baltimore. And a cousin of mine said, you know, you ought to check out Catholic University Law School. They have a new dean, a guy named Dean Bamberger. He's really into cutting-edge legal things, helping people and what have you. And I said, okay. Otherwise, I had not heard of Catholic University Law School. Sure. And but, So I applied, and fortunately for me, I got in. And graduated from Villanova, said goodbye to Philadelphia, came down and moved into an apartment in Arlington with uh, a friend from Villanova who was going to Georgetown Dental School, a friend from Villanova who was going to Georgetown Medical School, and uh, one other friend who was uh, going to Georgetown Medical of one of the friends. And then I moved in. And then we lived together in Arlington. While I was going for three years, seven, 1975, 1978, to Catholic University, a law school where I made, made some great friends who are still my friends. In fact, some of which I've worked with here at Lerner over the years, Pat May and, and, and others. And then I wasn't done with school. And this is my mother's influence. I really loved education. Um, so I went out and got a postgraduate degree in really? tax law from Georgetown. So I got my post-postgraduate, LLM in tax law, because I wanted to use that in real estate. I wanted to use it in partnerships. My daughter, who works at Aaron Fox, Angela, she has the same track record. She went to Catholic high school and then Villanova and then Catholic law school and then Georgetown for her LLM. And she works in real estate at Aaron Fox. So I'm very fortunate in in that regard. So so education, I've always valued education. I always valued education. I always valued degrees. So I have an adage that you, I guess I'll tell the free world. 
I used to teach my kids when they were growing up, you can't have too many boyfriends, excuse me, you can't have too many, you can't have too many jobs, degrees, and boyfriends and girlfriends in your 20s. You just can't because it's your 20s is when you're experimenting with what you want to do the rest of your life. Jobs. Don't worry about switching jobs in your 20s. Don't worry. You can't get enough degrees. You, it, it, have as many degrees as you can possibly afford and, and have time to get because you're just never going to have that period of freedom to go get educated that you have in your 20s. And then I have an adage, you can't have too many boyfriends and girlfriends, depending on who you are, because you're going to learn about how you're going to have a relationship and what your relationship's going to be as you as you get married. The biggest and, decision and, in and, life. And, right. Yeah, and make some things. So, so, so that's what I do in my 20s. I mean, I literally got educated. Did you like D.C. at the time? I fell in love with it. I came down. I lived in 1975. I lived in Virginia on Columbia Pike sure. and executive apartments. And I remember calling home the first week and I'm, I said to my mother, Mom, this place is really strange. People are really nice to each other. I mean, if, they, if you ask for directions, they almost get in their car and take you to where you're going. This is Northern Virginia back in 1975. I said, this is just, it was that Southern charm. A lot different than New York. A lot different than Long Island, a lot yeah. different than New York City. Oh, yeah. And I sort of fell in love with the peace of it. And I said, wow, it's a very peaceful environment. And I liked Georgetown. And I thought that I had never really lived in an urban environment where I could drive to urbanity. And I kind of fell in love with it. Of course, my parents wanted me to come back to New York. And, and the more I stayed, the more I fell in love with it. And then during the time in 1980, when I was getting my LLM, I met my wife at a party out in Upper Marlboro that a friend of mine asked me to come to. It was a state's attorney's party for all the employees of the courthouse, and she worked at the courthouse. So we met in 1980, got married in 1982. But that solidified sort of my, my continuing love for the area. Sure. And, uh, that's, and I stayed, and I didn't go back. So did you want to be a tax lawyer? No, I never wanted to be a tax lawyer. I just knew that I wanted to understand as much of the tax and partnership law as I could for real estate. I, as I say, one of the things I knew I wanted to be an attorney at nine years old, I also wanted, knew I wanted to be in real estate. Really? Yeah. The running joke in really? the running joke in law school was how many years will I practice law? And, uh, and I think I practiced, well, I practice law to this day, but in a law firm setting. And I think I did it for a year. Which firm? I started out, that's, that's a good story. I started out I got, I got lucky. I got a, a clerkship in Tyson's. This is back in 1975. 1975, you can imagine what Tyson's looked at, at that, and Tyson's Corner looked like in those days. There was only one building. It was a brown building next to Tyson's Corner Center on Route 7. And there was no other buildings around. There was no Greensboro. There was no mall. It was Tyson Center, but there was no Tyson's too. There were no, it was just... And Jerry Halpin started at that point to build. No, no, I, I, no, he had not started. Well, he might have started, uh, but there was no entrance into that. There was no West West Park. There was no West Park. It was 117 acres that you came in. That was Tyson's. That was Tyson's too. That Ted owned. It was all just, just the trees. There was nothing there. In fact. The Honeywell building, I think, was the first building in Tyson's, as I recall. Do you remember the building? You, you know where Silva Diner is today? Yes, that brown building. That yes. building right there was the only building that was in the area. Right off Old Courthouse Road and there. Yeah. I remember my office was on the 
seventh floor, yeah. and I opened and the window. In fact, I have the picture in my office. <laughs> looked at Tyson's Corner Center. Oh my goodness! And I said, I used to sit there and say, "What does it take to build that? What does it take to build a regional mall?" And that's how I first started to hear about Ted Lerner. Ted Lerner built that, and Ted Lerner owned 117 acres across the street. And I said, wow, that's an amazing accomplishment. What does it take to build that magnificent real estate development? Now, my father was in real estate. One of the things I haven't really picked up was that my dad owned property, still owns, owns oh, okay. properties to this day okay. and in the family. And he, you know, didn't, he didn't develop, he, he bought buildings and Investor. fixed them up. And well, he himself, he bought them, fixed them up. And he, whether they were houses, but they were some commercial buildings, there was some land. So always within the Fusillo family, there was five, six, seven, eight uh, different properties that we were working on together to, to fix up and to rent out in the town of Patchogue and in the area. So I kind of looked at real estate as something I wanted to do from the very beginning as well, because, I, because to me, it was putting an engine in motion that if you, if you oiled it and kept it kept the gas tank full and and watched it, it would continue to throw off revenue to you for a long time. And the goal was to make sure you built something in such a way that it it threw off money for you to live on that you had created very few things. It's a royalty, so to speak, as long as you continue to watch it. So I fell in love with that model, I guess, early on. And, uh, and, uh, in law school, you know, when it came to a real estate class, I killed it because it's what I loved. And I just love, I did very well in those classes. Um, and I studied tax and I liked tax. I liked the complication of tax. I liked the, the mind exercise of tax. Where I didn't do quite as well was maybe in some of the more civil, civil procedures I didn't do badly because that's mathematical. But, but some of the criminal law. I mean, I wasn't going to be a criminal attorney. You could have so, been a litigator, though. Well, I might have been a litigator, but I didn't. Once again, that's that's a service business that you get paid for what you do. It wasn't like creating something and then right. taking the revenue out of it for the rest of your life. But you have the skill set well, to do it. Well, you're very kind to say that. but I, uh, You love to negotiate, I'm sure. So. Well, I, <laughs> listen, I, I learned at the feet of the master in terms of, of that. So, so 1975, 1978, 1980, met my wife, stayed here. Fell in love with Washington. Like you said, Washington was really growing. Oh, God, yes. So to segue a little bit into, I, I had an opportunity at that time to work for a law firm called Wallstead, Wickwire, Peterson, Gavin, and Aslan. And they were a spinoff from Lewis Mitchell and Moore. And Lewis Mitchell and Moore was the construction litigation law firm, really, possibly on the East Coast. And they were in Tyson's. And a guy named John Wickwire was brilliant. And John Wickwire started a firm with Paul Wallstead, Don Gavin. And they, they had a big, long, big firm. And I was lucky because at the same time I was doing sort of minor partnership formation and things, I had a chance to do construction litigation. Now, you say, why, GCR, what's that? Well, construction litigation is essentially getting involved in a dispute between a contractor, say, and an owner, and figuring out 
what happened. What happened on the construction? I never forget it. Cedars Sinai Medical Center. What happened in the in that in that situation that caused these people to be at odds now that they'd have to get lawyers and go litigate the resolutions of their claims? And we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. So I got a chance to work on the Kennedy the Kennedy Foundation building up in Boston. I got a chance to work on Cedars Sinai Medical Center, and I was a young associate focused on construction litigation. It exposed me to construction contracts. It exposed me to provisions in construction contracts. So when later on in life, when I started to build things, I had the really the, the ability to, to delve into and negotiate those agreements with the companies that were doing the work for us and making sure to the best of my ability, I was putting in those putting in those contracts, the provisions that I saw were problems from all the years of experience having done that with some of the great minds like, I mean, Jerry Ittig was back in those days. Um, uh, he was a really great, and as I said, John Wickwire. I, I, I like that more than I liked the local practice side under a guy named Gary Peterson. I, I, I like that. But then after about a year, I... I like to say I wasn't born and raised to work on a law firm in Tyson's. Uh, my life had to take on a different role. And there was a party of the ways, mutual party of the ways at that point. They, they saw I didn't want to work hard there. And once again, I was thinking like an owner. I just, you know, I would sit there and I just didn't like some of the things that were going on. I didn't like the practice of law. I didn't like the, the billing system. And I saw people who couldn't afford it being billed things. I just... The concept bothered me a little bit back in those days. Maybe sure. I was just a little childish, but uh, they they were. Uh, so I ended up not, I ended up leaving there and I answered an ad in the paper, which I think changed my life. And it's, it's, and it's not what you think at the moment. It's going to have an interlude. I answered an ad in the paper from, a, from a, a guy who owned what is today known as Beltway Plaza. His name was Sidney. J. Brown. Do you know Sidney J. Brown? I've never met him, but I did meet the, his, his son-in-law. Yeah. Runs yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's a great guy, too. Yeah. Have you interviewed him? No. Yeah, no. yeah, you should. It's, yeah, he's he's a great guy. He's I've a great... property and, you know... No, he's a great guy. You, you should interview him. Yeah. Because he came after me. So I answered an ad. I picked up the phone. I called. I said, and he answered, Hello? I said, hi, Mr. Brown. My name is Art Fusillo. I work at a law firm here in Northern Virginia. I'm from New York originally. Uh, I'm from New York. I said, oh, well, nice, nice to know that. Uh, I, said, I said to him, I'm a hard worker. He was looking for a general counsel. I said, I'm a hard worker. And he goes, ah, ah, what do you know about hard work? Just like that. And I go, excuse me? What do you know about hard work? I go, well, I'm, I'm a, I mean, I work hard. He goes, you don't know the first thing about hard work. So I said, oh, my God, i got to go meet this guy. So sure, and he says, come in on Thursday. So I go in. I go into his office. His office is the shambles. And I end up taking a job with him. And I worked for him for about, as I said, Fred Wine came after me. So you got yes. to interview Fred. But I worked for him for about, I'd say, about 14 months. It was 
an experience. The guy was, he taught me a lot in that short period of time. He taught me how to use a pencil. I mean, he taught me how to evaluate things that he was making decisions on from a business standpoint. He taught me, he taught me litigation, much far more litigious than anybody I'd ever met up until that point. He taught me, he taught me how to be tough. You know, what he did was he provided me maybe a bridge between this young lawyer coming out of a law firm that had polished mahogany and was doing construction litigation and to, okay, you want to be in this business, you're going to meet the likes of me and others, and you better stand up and figure out how you're going to make it work and how you're going to succeed. So Sydney Brown, I knew Mrs. Brown, she was lovely. I, I, I knew her, his son, he was a nice man to me, and he taught me things, I, I could tell you a thousand stories, but... Suffice it to say that I give him credit for toughening me up, toughening me up. And not that I needed it in my relationship with Ted, but he gave me, he gave me, he gave me more self-esteem and self-confidence in that I could put up with it or I could, or I could go toe to toe with it. If there was a, a, if there was something coming my way from an outside source I mean, it, it just, there were, there, I could tell you stories, but the, the point of the story is he, he was a guy who was almost legally blind. He had been editor-in-chief of the NYU Law Review. He was on the boat going to Nuremberg to be a prosecuting attorney in the, in the Nuremberg trials. He oh. walked it off to become, he walked off the boat to become a real estate developer. I mean, he, he, he created law in Maryland, university Shopping Center versus Garcia created law. Still to this day, I know the case because he he had a theory. He went forward with it. The guy was tough as nails. So I'm working for him, and in 1981, I'm sitting with my girlfriend, soon to be at some point to be wife, and I open up the Washington Post. Had I not opened the Washington Post, we would not be having this interview. I open up the Washington Post in the business section. And I'm leafing through it, and there's a little tombstone ad in the lower right-hand corner. Lerner Corporation seeks general counsel. So I turned to my my girlfriend, my wife, Syl, and I, my girlfriend at the time, and I said, here's my next job. And it says, send a resume to Bill Scott. So I get in the next day. I said, and this is, this is Lerner Corporation. This is the man. So I send a uh, resume in, and about a week later, on a Monday, I call up Lerner, and the, uh, Lerner Corporation in Wheaton, and I said, hi, my name's Art Fusillo. Is Bill Scott there? And next thing you know, hello. I said, Bill, Art Fusillo. He goes, can I help you? I said, Bill, I sent you a resume for the position. He goes, yeah, Art. I got a hundred resumes. Yours stood out because you're in the shopping center business. Can you come by on Monday night for dinner? That following Monday night, I met Bill, lovely guy, hit it out, hit it off, became fast friends. He says, Can you come by tomorrow night and meet Ted Lerner? I said, I'd love to meet Ted Lerner. 
Next night, 6.30, Ted comes back from playing racquetball, walks in the office. Bill says, Ted, this is Art Fusillo. Uh, Ted says, okay, let's go in the conference room. We go in the conference room. And Bill says, which I had never, didn't even know he was going to do it. He turns to Ted and says, Ted, Art's the guy I want for the job. So. And what does Bill do? Bill was general counsel. Oh, okay. And he was moving over to director of leasing. So he wanted, Bill wanted me to replace him. Got it. So Ted says, okay, Art, that's, that's fine. How much would you like to make? So I said, well, Mr. Lerner, thank you for the opportunity. I don't think I'm worth $100,000. I'll take $35,000. And he goes, okay, I'll pay you $35,000. And I always say to myself, jokingly, that I made $5,000 that day because I would have paid him $5,000 to work with him for a year. Because the truth of the matter is, is I was getting an opportunity with a gentleman who, at the time, and this is something that people maybe don't realize, but in 1981, Ted owned four regional malls, Landover, Wheaton, White Flint, and Tyson's, and he developed them. And the history of that's interesting how he developed those. And, and Wheaton had an office building on it, uh, two office buildings, actually. Tyson's didn't have any office buildings. Lander didn't have any office buildings. And White Flint wasn't, yeah, White Flint had no office buildings. So really, when I joined Ted, he owned some apartments that he had built. Right. And he owned the four regional malls. And he had a mi- minority interest in an office building in Arlington. But that was it. There was no Washington Square. There was no Flint Hill. There was no Tyson's 2. There was no, the things that you know, you know this building here, a tower. The, the things that you know in his office, we, 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 there were no hotels. There were no strip centers. There was no industrial product. We really, we really joined at a time where Ted had four regional malls that were successful and some apartments, a couple thousand apartments, 3,000 or so maybe apartments, and no office buildings, a minority interest in an office building except for the ones at Wheaton. So I, I was able to watch the growth of the company. I was able to participate and help in the growth of the company from that base, where, which was at the time, we, we don't even have any regional malls at this point. That's the evolution of it. So, how big was the company at that point? Well, that, it was me, Ted, and Evan Novenstein, and Bill Scott. Mark Lerner was doing architectural work with his uncle on the other side of the. Well, I, I know Evan worked there at the time. Yeah, Evan. Evan. Evan was. Evan was. Worked with Richie Cohen. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, Evan was there. Evan was. He was sort of the development guy, so to speak. Okay. Ted, me, and Bill Scott. We had our four offices next to each other. Nobody else. We had a management division that would manage our residential. And then we had a management division that would manage our retail, but it wasn't very big. And of course, we had an accounting department that had to make sure that was run by a very, very talented woman. Probably hundreds of tenants that time, at that time. Oh, yeah. And the management company did an excellent job. Always has. Learner, learner management's top notch. So all the, all the regional malls were managed. Bill Scott handled it. He was the director of leasing for all that stuff. And then the residential was run by uh, two or three ladies who... Um, women who uh, was it who, Albert his partner there though? 
And those deals, no apartments? No, no. Uh, Sunny's not our partner in any apartments. Um, Sunny is our partner. Uh, Sunny became our partner at really uh, White Flint. And, excuse me, first Landover because he had the land, and then White Flint because he had the Capital land. Capital Office Park, too, right? Capital Office Park, there was a group of people. So I apologize. Capital Office Park had a minority interest in it. The same group that had done Spring Hill Lake Apartments. Right. There was a, he had a minority interest in that, but it wasn't what we had developed that. Mm-hmm. So we really were, I mean, we weren't small, but we weren't big. Charles E. Smith might have been bigger. Oh, you, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I see, I, I don't know the Charles E. Smith, the Kafers, the, right. the, the, uh, I, I don't know them because they Fenders. were, an, they were an era before me, mm-hmm. but it was interesting. Ted and Sonny had, they had done Landover. They had done White Flint. They were focused on Washington Square. So Washington Square was the early 80s, and that was coming into fruition. I was there. I remember being on the corner the night they shut, turned the lights on first in that atrium, and everybody got a chance to see that. Um, that was 82, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So so around there. Now, you know, there are a bunch of stories, but remember that around 81, 82, 83, we started to have horrible interest rates and real problems in oh, the yeah. industry. I was there early in 81, 82, when Ted was, was bidding against Mort Zuckerman for the Forbes building in the West End. And Ted lost the bid because they demanded that he guarantee, it was a formulaic rent, and he guarantee that the interest rate used in calculating the rent would not be higher than 12%. And Ted said, I won't do that because it could be 14, 15, 16%. Because that's how interest rates work. And Mort Zuckerman said, I'll guarantee it'll be not higher than 12%. He got the deal. And that's when the USA, US News and World Report? That's what it was, US News and World Report. I apologize. Yeah. It wasn't Forbes, it was US News and World Report. Right. That was the building. But that's why we lost it. Yeah. You know, Ted, Ted created, Ted, Ted was a young man who was selling houses in the Wheaton area for very successful other, other developers who were building houses. Ted was a genius. Did he grow up in, in Washington? Ted did. Ted Lerner. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ted grew up in Washington. Yeah. Ted was a, yeah. yeah. Ted's, di- Ted's father died when he was very, very young, uh-huh. 21 years old. And he took care of his mother, he took care of his brother, took care of his sister. Ted took care of his entire. He was a huge Senators fan, too, I understand. Yeah. yeah. Well, he used, to, he, used to, he used to sell newspapers just to get 25 cents to go into the games. He'd sell programs, at, and then he would sell programs at the Griffin Stadium to get more money. I mean, he yeah. he loved baseball, but he was a hard worker. He took care of his mother, brother, and, and sister, and because he was the breadwinner in the family, he had younger he had mother and he had younger siblings. And as I said, his dad passed away when he was twenty one. He went to law school at GW, and has he donated the law school that's there now? It's the Theodore and Murder Law School. And, and he realized early on that when, when, this, when a client would, didn't pay him, his first client didn't pay him, he goes, I'm not doing this for the rest of my life. This is crazy. So he, he, he got an opportunity to sell houses for, for developers in the Wheaton area. And he did it very, very well. I think when he was 28 years old, something tells me he had 68 brokers working under him. He was really hustling. And... Through uh, another relationship, he was introduced to Isidore Gadelsky. And Isidore Gadelsky was the owner of Perconti Sand and Gravel. Right. And uh, he was 
really a visionary. And he decided that he wanted to build a shopping center in Washington because the one had been built in Illinois or something. And uh, he wanted to do one in Washington. He was that kind of visionary. He was a man who had built roads. It's the 1950s. Yeah, late 50s. And he built roads. And someone said, well, this young Ted Lerner, he's, he knows Wheaton. He knows how to do it. He knows how to make things happen in Wheaton. He's a hustler. He's, very, he's a hard worker. So Ted was introduced to Isidore, and, and, and Isidore explained his concept, and Ted ran with it. He, he ran with it. And he went and made the deals with Montgomery Ward and others and hustled the concept. It was an open-air center and had grocery in it, as I remember. And he made it happen. Ted made it happen. So he saw this opportunity. He had a minority interest. He, but, but, but he saw this opportunity. So he, he went over to Tyson's. And Tyson's was just Tyson's. It was a, I don't know, it was an apple orchard or some orchard and he saw that the beltway was going to go right through this orchard and he was able to negotiate a ground lease he didn't buy the land and he called up Isidore and he said to Isidore as Ted would tell me the story he called up Isidore and said I'd like to do another one of these in Virginia but of course based on our relationship I'd like you to be my partner Isidore said I'm not I'm not doing it I don't want to do it but Ted said okay would you mind if I went forward and did it and he said, no, I don't mind. So Ted says, four o'clock in the morning, he got a phone call from Isidore, because that's when Isidore would get up to get the trucks out. And he called back and said, I changed my mind. I want to do it with you. Ted said, fine. So Isidore and Ted in Europe, uh, started to focus on Tyson's Corner as the next location. And they had to get it zoned. There's no such thing as a regional mall in Virginia. So they hired Till Hazel, of course. and he went against the guy from Columbia, uh, Columbia, Maryland. Who's the? Jim Rouse. Jim Rouse. Jim Rouse wanted to put the mall on Tyson's 2, and Ted wanted to put it on Tyson's 1. So how did Max Ammerman get into the mix? Because I know he was a partner there. Max Ammerman got into the mix because he was the lawyer for Isidore. Ah, and okay. And that's how he worked his way into both. Wheaton and worked his way into uh, And wasn't Tyson's. the landowner on, the, on that ground lease, the Folger family? Where in the Tyson's? Tyson's? Yes. I don't remember that. I, I did. I interviewed Brian Folger, and yeah. he said that was it? his father owned the land. The land he, he assembled land, and that was the parcel. Interesting. I don't recall that. I, I do remember 1985 when we sold it, buying out the ground lease, but I may not have, been, I may not have had a relationship with Brian at the time. That I would have remembered that because later on I became friends with Brian. But I don't remember it. Vernon Narr was a broker. It was another interview. Vernon Narr, yeah. He's the one that sold the center. Yeah, in 85? Yeah, to Lendorf. Yeah, to Lendorf, right. That's, yeah. That was a nice, that, I, I handled that. He told that story and he said that it took a long time for Mr. Lerner to make a decision on that. There was a lot of battles on whether to sell or not because he was working with Zay in the project. Well, Ted didn't want to sell. No. no, Ted, but that, that was always the difference between Ted and and his partners is that they were older and they wanted to sell and Ted didn't want to sell. Right. So Isidore died in 1962. So when Isidore died, Homer, his brother, Max, didn't know how to build a regional mall in all due respect. Homer didn't. He, he was a very nice man. I got to know him. I got to know him pretty well in the early 80s. 
because I would attend the meetings uh, as Ted's representative. And, and I got to know George Kavushi and other people. And so they came to Ted and said, would you complete them all? Would you build it? Ted said, sure. So they opened in 1968. Tyson's one. And then, so he had Wheaton and he had Tyson's did one. Did negotiate all the department store deals? He Ted did. He went out to meet with me. Or, or went to meet them or they came to see him. That, that Ted was hands-on doing it in those days. He absolutely was. He's the, he's the man who went to New York and got Bloomingdale's to come down. Now, he may have had somebody representing him in certain instances. I, I wasn't there. But he was instrumental in Wheaton Plaza and instrumental in in uh, Tyson's Corner. So I wonder where he got the template because I was in the regional mall business myself. Right. And the thing I learned early on is that you never get the department stores in the same room to negotiate <laughs> your REA. And an REA was a concept that uh, I learned at Hallmark when I was there. And I'm curious if, you know, he learned how to put an REA together from somebody else or he actually created one himself. Uh, from somebody else. At the time, there, remember, Rouse was trying to, Rouse was building regional malls. Right. Cafaro, DeBartolo. Right. Others Mel were, Simon. They, Mel Simon. So there um, were law firms up yep. in Baltimore, yep. Bernstein and others. So they, that so, whole concept is already uh, out there. Yeah. And, our, even in the 50s. Exactly. We had a Korea construction operations of the leasement agreement at the time. And he, he went to the people who um, were doing it. But of course, Ted had the street smarts to know what deal to make. So, because he had successfully done Wheaton. So then he did successfully did Tyson's. And then Sonny Abramson came to him about the land they had over in the 80 plus acres they had over in Landover. Right. And then the 43 acres they had at Rockville Pike, Wheaton Plaza, excuse me, White Flint. And he said to Ted, would you, would you build one with me here? And Ted said, I'd love to. They had been, they had been childhood friends. And he, he loved, he loved Mr. Abramson. Mr. Abramson loved him. And, and then they, they famously went on to build Landover and White Flint together, Sonny Abramson and the Abramson family and Ted, who have been wonderful to deal with over the years. The Abramsons are wonderful people. Sonny was a wonderful man. Families are, the children are wonderful. And they have enjoyed a very, very close relationship. As they say, Ted, Ted loved Sonny and Sonny loved Ted. They just, just got along famously. So they built White Flint and they built... Landover and Ted managed it and managed it successfully. And they got the department stores to come in and we had magnificent department stores at Landover. White Flint was fantastic and, and Tyson's and was great and Wheaton was great. Uh, but in 85, we sold Wheaton and we sold our interest in Tyson's. And then we were down to White Flint and Landover. But, but we did partner with Homart after we bought the land, Tyson's 2, to build Tyson's 2 Galleria. And then we partnered with Cigna to build Dulles Town Center in 1999. So on Tyson's too, I want to do a side story there a little bit if I can. Mm -hmm. uh, I worked at Hallmark from 1980 to 1981. Right. And while I was there, I worked for Rich Welcome, who was the head of Sure, for, I knew Rich. For, uh, for Hallmark. Yeah. And after that, I got laid off because... We had a, a, a cutback in 1982, right. the development team. We just weren't going to build any more malls for a while. I mean, they just, we, our team was too big. So they cut, I was brand new and right. I was just one of these early guys. 
But I stayed in touch with Rich, and then I saw him when he came back, and he said, I was bringing, I brought Nordstrom's to the market. He said, I walked Nordstrom's around. Yeah. And, you know, they wanted, I wanted to bring them to the Tyson's 2 site because they'd already made a deal with Lerner at that point. Yeah. And it turns out Nordstrom said, I want to be over there. <laughs> I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in a brand new center. Yeah. I want to be in the existing. That's right. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, Rich so, was a nice guy. Uh, yeah. So he was disappointed that he couldn't make that happen. But, um, yeah. you know. Well, they ended up with, with they ended up, well, they didn't go to Lerner. They went to Lendorf because right. they wanted to be in an existing center. Exactly. You know, in those days, you paid them $19 million to come, $20 million, Nordstrom. But we made a good deal with Macy's and we made a you great deal Sachs, with Neiman Marks right. and Sachs. Yeah. And the center is doing very well today, it appears. Oh, you know, Pierce is doing well. And Tyson's Corner seems to doing well. The whole regional mall business has changed dramatically. There's no question about it. But so Ted built the regional malls, and that's when I came in in 1981. There were these magnificent centers. I was doing all the negotiating of sure. all the leases. I was doing all the contracts for those deals. I was negotiating with people, and, and I was working on those really all through the 80s. And then we opened Washington Square, and we started to work on Flint Hill. And we opened some buildings in Flint Hill. And you were general counsel. I was general counsel, yeah, basically, but mostly contract negotiations and and any other negotiations. You know, the bidding on Tyson's 2 was Ted, me, and Evan in a closet trying to figure out what we're going to bid on on Tyson's 2 because we're going against, we're trying to buy out the partners before it went to auction. There were some interesting stories. Was there a coin flip or something on whether the. Coin flip was later on with Homart as to who would select first in terms of the buildings. Right. When we when we we split up the partnership, but all that worked out. All that really worked out well. Ted was very interested. As I said, he was he was dynamic. He wanted to develop. He wanted to own the land. He saw it as a good investment for his family. So we ended up with Tyson's too. And and then around 1985, 19 I should know this exactly. 1985, 1986, a close friend of mine. A guy named Jerry O'Connell. Do you know Jerry O'Connell? Very familiar name. I just he used to be a broker in the area. He now owns the Soggy Dollar Bar in Yost Van Dyke, in the islands. He's a great guy. Jerry and I were friends through a mutual acquaintance, and he was buying land out in Loudoun County. So I said, Jerry, maybe that's something we would do because I was looking for opportunities. Ted, Ted had always said, if you, you know, look for opportunities for the company, which is really great. Well, I mean, you're telling, you're telling me to look for opportunities. That's exactly what I want to do. So uh, Jerry came in one Saturday and Jerry met Ted and Jerry brought in a Bill Bryant map. Anyway, I still have Remember it. Bill Bryant. Yeah. I still have the map. Yep. And he, he explained what was happening in Loudoun County on the yes. Route 28 corridor. And he was circling land. And actually we had... Through Evan Novenstein, we had uh, bought land from Jerry Innergate, Jack Andrews and Steve Hubert in the mid-80s to build Vintage Park, which was a, a office building development. It's the first one you come to at 606. It's the Northwest Quadrant. Okay. Well, that's where I met Brian Folger. That's where I met Clayton Folger. Anyway, at that time, Jerry came in and said, we, we, I mean, people were buying land. I mean, it was a land rush. People were flipping contracts for more than the face value of the contract. Uh, 
Bill Bryant had people in a frenzy out there on a land rush. And it was because the county had not done anything, but now the county was opening up to development. And there was the Dulles North Area Management Plan. There was the Eastern Loudon Area Management Plan. All these management plans were coming into fruition and people were buying land. And I can remember literally sitting in Jack Andrews' office with six or seven or eight other property owners up and down the 28 corridor, putting maps on the wall, taking magic markers and putting in where the roads would go with magic markers. So that's how Atlantic and Pacific got on either side of 28 and then putting side roads that went east and west and taking those maps into the county and going, this is the way the area should be laid out. And, and, and it happened. All the public hearings came. They said, this is a beautiful way to lay out the county. Everybody agreed. So those roads that go through Dulles Town Center and Dulles 28 were all done advisedly, all done with us with magic markers because the land was so virgin. Two names come to mind when you mention that. Yeah. One was a podcast guest of mine, Bob Kettler. Sure. And Henry Long. Yeah. Yeah. They were pretty active in that. Yeah. 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 Bobby was, he was very active. So, so ultimately, Jerry came in, showed us a property that was known as Bow Mead. Yes. Didn't, Bow Mead doesn't mean anything. It's actually in, an improper reference because it wouldn't be a Bow Mead, it'd be a Bell Mead. But, but anyway, we called it Bow Mead. And Jack Andrews was just such a genius. He found land and he just, he was amazing. So it turned out that Ted said he'd do it, but would we bring in the Abramsons? Would they, would they be interested? And at the time, the Abramsons were interested to, to do it with us. So we ended up buying Bo Mead with, with Intergate. And Bo Mead became the internet capital of the world. It's literally the ground zero. It's where Equinix came out. It's now where 60, 70% of the world's internet goes through. Yeah. So Bo Mead, we then bought Dulles 28 Center. We bought High Point together. Ted had already purchased Dulles Town Center, part of it. Southmark came in. We bought the balance of that. And then we bought Round Hill together and built thousands of homes, 1,100, 1,200 homes out in Round Hill, Virginia. So we became heavily involved in that area. Of course, we had to go through the early 90s, which were very, very difficult. But thanks to Ted and Sonny Abramson's staying power, we were able to... to what was the entitlement process back then? Oh, it, the entitlement process back then was amazing. It's a great, it's a great question. <laughs> there, were, there was not one application that was going through the county. There were a hundred applications yes. going through the county. And there was the, once the comprehensive plans came out, lawyers were filing zoning applications. We used to all show up because one of the planning commissioners, the head of the planning commission, commission at the time, was also the head of the 4-H club. So we would all support the 4-H club and we would all go out. All the developers would show up. That's the famous $10,000 gallon of milk that Bob DeLuca bought. Yeah. So, so all of that happened. There was a feeding frenzy and we were going in front of the boards with Betty Tatum and Stockman and others and a guy, Bose boss. I mean, just wonderful people. Stan Kavanaugh, they were nice. They were Tommy Dotson. I mean, these were people and I was getting the, getting the regional mall zone. So I was submitting an application in 1986 to bring forward Dulles town center because it was not zoned. And I got to know all the people. And then in November of 1987, they zoned Dulles Town Center, which was a miracle in and of itself. And that was my first 
that was my first step into the world of land acquisition and zoning. So buying Bomead and uh, zoning Dulles Town Center was was my step toward what toward the development side. So I hired people under me now to come in to replace me as general counsel, and then they grew. And as I grew, in the, we bought more properties in the late 80s. We got them zoned. We sold some parcels. So how much latitude did Ted give you as far as, you know, negotiating? I mean, being the front guy. Well, he, as far as being the front guy, 100%. He, he, he abhorred the limelight. He, he didn't want that. Uh, Ted so came he to, wouldn't go to the zoning. To Ted the came to one meeting. And I looked at him, I said, Ted, you don't have to come to any more meetings. I mean, he was so tortured by it. And I said, I got this. So he said, great. So he stayed back. I come back and report. So as far as the front man, I was the front man for all of that uh, through the 80s and 90s, 2000s, to a large extent. But I would always come back on the big decisions and seek his guidance. And what do you want me to do? But it got to the point where he trusted, you know, 95% of my decisions because he knew I had a developer's mentality of what the end game was going to be and how we were not going to get screwed here. So he let me write the proffers for the mall and he let me write these other documents because I was bringing the practical experience along with the legal knowledge of being able to build something. What about the economics? The economics, I didn't worry we, we didn't worry about the economics that much. And I, what I mean by that was when you're buying land in Loudoun County, you're buying the land for whatever it's cost. You're not doing an IRR analysis and determining how many years you're going to hold it. It wasn't just, wasn't done like that in the eighties and nineties. You bought the land, you wanted to put it into your portfolio. You wanted to have it for future growth. You didn't do a, uh, a CPA analysis. Or but you knew what, how things were trading. So you well, you knew the trading, but you didn't, we weren't traders. You know, we were on the 200-year plan. We're not selling anything. That's right. So but I you, never worried about it. Ted never worried about it. But you knew you weren't overpaying, in essence, what I'm saying. Well, so. you, well you, sometimes you, you had no idea because they were asking more money. Every time you went to the next deal, it <laughs> more money. and things. It's like are, an auction. It, well, nobody knew what the top of it was. Nobody knew. It's an auction. But if you had the cash and you could do it, yeah. you would buy it. Ted was putting it away. He saw, he saw opportunity, but he... There was no time frame. Zoning, I did all the zoning, but there's no economics in there other than, you know, try to keep it. In those days, you can get a property zoned in a year. Now it's five years. In those days, you walked in, there were three people in the county. We you were banking land, basically. We were saying. banking land. But the zoning has changed. So in the, old, in the old days, you'd walk in and there were three people. There was the head of zoning, head of planning, right. and the county exec. And you'd sit down with the three people and they would come up with VDOT's recommendations on your roads, and you'd, you'd figure out this. And it took you a year. It took you a year and $250,000. As time has gone on, they have narrowed it down where there's, at times, you feel like there's somebody literally in charge of the willow tree and somebody <laughs> in charge of, you know, stormwater management storage and purification and then you look, somebody's in charge of somebody's in charge of this planning. There's 32 people who now had the, have the jobs of what it used to be three. And now it takes you five years, three years, and a million dollars, if you're lucky. Completely changed. 
the process over the years, which, you know, I guess it's for the better because you're getting a better product, but boy, it's become a lot harder. So I did that in the 80s while other people started to do the leases behind me. Now, I am still to this day review all the leases, pretty much except for the office leases. I've gotten out of that. I review all the retail leases because that's what I've been doing for 45 years. So I still read them all. I still sign off on before anybody else, before Ted signs them or Mark signs them at this point at Mark. So ultimately, that's still my background. It's still what I, what I bring to the table. But so in the 80s, we did Loudoun County, where we started to buy Bowmead, High Point, Dulles 28 Center, Dulles Town Center. Got Dulles Town Center zone in 1987, November. Started to work on it immediately. Started to sell, and then 89 came. 89, the crash came. And in 89, you have RTC, you've got all the issues, the go-go 80s are over, the, the crazy feeding frenzy's over, people are, there's blood in the streets, people are losing their jobs, Ted and Sonny were able to hold on, we ended up taking over our partner's interests in the deals, and we held on, and they paid the taxes, and they moved forward. We didn't, we had debt on some of the property, but not, not a lot, but they handled it, because they, they they were they had they had the right. Uh, Do you have any development going on during the 90s, no early, no no well, 80s, early 90s? no none none that I can recall at the moment. Nothing going on out there. Certainly, there may have been an office building going on at Flint Hill, but so so eighty nine ninety comes ninety one ninety two. We get involved with Colony Capital, and we start buying properties out of the RTC. But and that was very that was good for us. In any event, come, come 1991, because everybody's in the doldrums, I had a relationship at the time with Pete Henry. Oh, yeah. And Pete... Travel Crow. Travel Crow, Pete Henry, who I highly recommend you interview. And Pete Henry and I got to be friends because I needed his help to see if we could put together a shopping center on Route 28, and he started to help me. But Pete's brother had a relationship with uh, some people at Mobile Oil. And an introduction was made by Pete. And we were fortunate enough through a wonderful guy named Greg Ham, who I'm friends with today, to discuss with Greg and then eventually discuss with the higher-ups at Mobile Oil, North Point Village. And this after Jim Todd left? No, Jim, yes, Jim Todd had gone. But, but Peterson was there. Yeah, Jim Peterson. And he's wonderful. And I strongly recommend you talk to him if you haven't. He's a great guy. So we bought North Point Village, and then the rest is history. We, we built North Point Village. At the same time, we developed a relationship. We built uh, 24 acres to Spectrum at Reston Town Center, which was, once again, through the trust that had been created with mobile oil, our ability to proceed, Tom DeLisandro, Greg Ham, Jim. They were, I, I did Clarksburg Town Center with Tom DeLisandro. Yeah, class act. Yep. So wonderful people, but we but we worked hard, and we built the product out that they wanted, and we were respectful, and we had the ability, and we put it together, and and that was that was my first North Point and Spectrum were my first two hands-on shopping centers, and that was just wonderful for me. I mean, it was the ability to create something of value for the community, the ability to continue to gas it up and oil it to this day so it continues to 
produce. That was giant food, wasn't it? Yeah, giants, giants there. Yep. We've just done another great deal at Spectrum, which has turned out to be a wonderful product. That's a power center, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's fantastic. So those are my first two, and 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 Pete helped tremendously in all of those. So why did you decide to get in the strip business? I mean, what, I mean that was the first strip. Yeah, well, because there was no reason not to. I mean, yeah. here Ted had built regional malls, right. and, at, and in 1993, 1995, we had yet to build Douglas Town Center. Right. We had built Galleria. Right. But, I, but Ted was a local developer. He didn't want to leave and go to Cleveland. Right. So there weren't too many spots left to do a regional mall. Yeah. There was one out in Gainesville that we bought at the corner of 29 and 66, 100 acres, which I thought was going to be the next regional mall out of 66, and it should have been. You, you, you could have had Tyson's and then Tobman's Mall there, Fair Oaks, and then later on would have been our mall at six, at 29 and 66. And I met with department stores and I tried to get, I toured it with Macy's and Sears and Benny's. And at that time, it was the beginning of the end of the regional mall business, especially the new regional well, mall business. Hazel Peterson had the site next to the Bull Run. That's Remember right. that site? Yeah. <laughs> but that was even earlier. But Peterson built a shopping center across the street from that site very good center with giant in it right that prevented us from doing a strip center of any size and then over the years we had people come in like cabela's who wanted to go there and others <clears throat> and i wouldn't do it i wouldn't do a single deal because i didn't want to ruin the 100 acres mm-hmm. and ted didn't want to ruin the 100 acres but i didn't want to ruin the 100 acres it was a bad decision I, it either had to be part of a comprehensive larger plan or it didn't and fortunately fortunately i could not put together sears pennies and uh, Macy's for a center because recently we just sold it for a tremendous amount of money uh, as a data center uh, site that I got zoned. We got zoned back in December and I worked on to get it zoned. Mm-hmm. So, so that's jumping forward. But going back to the early '90s, it was North Point and, and Spectrum and wonderful experiences. Flying around with Pete Henry, negotiating with Office Depot, you know, sharing a room someplace because we was trying to keep costs down. I mean, it was just, and then, and then figuring out how to build it. And, and then I was in, I literally had people who were building it and then they left. I had to go in a trailer. So I was working the trailer every day and I was going in and making decisions on site. And that's where I learned that all these wonderful executives that I was dealing with on the construction companies and the construction contracts and all these wonderful heads of state that were owners of the company meant nothing if the person in the field who was in that trench didn't get the communication as to what we wanted. <clears throat> and I really learned that by being in the trailer and seeing it. The communication wasn't getting down to those people. Interesting. Yeah. So I learned that you better under, they be, the people in the field better understand what you want. But the experience of Spectrum, the experience of North Point, Hands-on. Who are your builders? I mean, you hired contractors, right? You guys, yeah. you guys never did any contracting. We, own, did no, well, we did minor contracting, but L.F. Jennings built North Point and Harvey okay. Cleary. Yeah. Harvey Cleary built uh, Spectrum, and Joe Cleary is still a friend of mine to this day. Fantastic guy. He's, he lives in Houston. And I'll never forget the story because I was complaining about something. And uh, he says, well, show me. So I went out. To the, we were in the front of the Best Buy, and I said, I said, do you see this joint? This is horrible. There was a joint on a column. And he looked at it. He looked at me. 
and he looked at his project manager. And he said to his project manager, is that joint acceptable to you? And the project manager looked at him and he goes, because it's not acceptable to me. I agree with Art. Fix that joint. And I said, well, we became instant friends. And we're friends to this day as a consequence of it. He just was a smart guy. He was a good businessman. He understood, listen to what I was complaining about. I'm not, maybe I'm not crazy. And you don't have to always agree. To, you don't have to fight me. You, you correct it. So he was a good, he's a good friend. So we did, we did Spectrum, which is fabulous. We did North Point, which is fabulous. And we got into the strip center business because we could. It was a, it was a cousin of what we were doing in the regional mall business. They were little engines that could, they were doubles. They were home runs. They were yeah. just doubles. And, and they've proven to be fantastic because grocery anchored centers are still doing well. And then you found Falls Grove, right? And how did that? So that, out? so, so that was interesting. I had seen Falls Grove before it was the Thomas farm. Was this after Joel Foundry had started Catlins or was it? Well, that's a long story. We had Catlins on the contract and dropped oh, it. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, we had Oh, no, no, not Kentland's. Jo- I apologize. J. Alfandre and the property up in Germantown. We had all that under contract. We had done, we had been partners with Winchester Homes on a project, and we had the land from two guys named Colton and Laskin. And yes, then, Danny Colton. Danny Colton. Yes. Yeah, and we had the land under contract. He, he got into some trouble. Yeah. <laughs> well, we had the land, and, you know, you talk about bad decisions that we, we, we made a bad decision. We dropped the land. Peterson picked it up. And the rest is history. We made a bad decision. But I was negotiating. In fact, back in those early 90s, I was going up to Germantown doing the land plan for Germantown. The town center was a design that three of us built. The right side where we own the land was a design that three of us built. And then we, we got out of it. Uh, I worked with Peter Burns of Winchester. On yes. Seneca Club, which was an apartment building in Germantown. Yeah, Peter Burns is who our partner was. Yeah. To sit with Peter. And yeah. at that time, Rick DeBella. Yeah, and and a guy who yep. came came to work for us. So we so we were doing that all up there. We, we made a bad decision. We dropped that ground, and then I had looked at the land that was known as the Thomas Farm. There was the Evans Farm, the King Farm, the Thomas Farm, the one other, the Crown Farm. So Crown, King, Evans, right. Thomas. There were four farms. Everybody wanted. So King went to the Pritzkers, and that's that was that deal that's over on Rockville Pike. King Farm. Evans, I remember going up to Mrs. Evans on her tractor saying, could I buy your property? She threw me off the ground. <laughs> she said, no, I'm, like, I'm going to give it to John Hopkins. I remember knocking on the door of Crown Farm and saying to Mrs. Crown, would you be considered? She says, thousands of birds when they come here. No, I'm not doing it. Eris Bartorosian got that deal. Congratulations to him. But I looked at the Thomas Farm, and rumor had it we were interested in the Thomas Farm. So Bob Young and Tom, who wasn't doing commercial, he was doing townhouse projects, put together a group of us, himself, JPI to do apartments, and Pulte to do single-family detached. And we came together in a room, Stan Settle, Rick DiBella for Pulte, Jim Butts, Greg Lamb for uh, JPI, Terry Aiken, and uh, Bob Young and Tom, and myself 
the learner and we got in a room and became fast partners and hired somebody to help us do it. And then the rest is history. We bought out the office buildings and the hotel and the retail. And that was our contribution. Plus we had a contribution to the infrastructure and everybody bought their respective parcels. And it was a famous partnership that had a lot of documents, but we all got along and they wanted Falls Grove to be in the, they didn't, the county city wanted Falls Grove to be in the middle. And I go, no, 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 cannot be in the middle. I, I do know something about retail. Shady you Grove Road. Put it up on Shady Grove Road, opposite the hospital. Yep. No one's going to get hurt. I'll never forget. I, I joked with the guys, and I don't know that. You know, it's not that. It, 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 I joke with the guys. Here they're building million dollar homes. They're very excited. They got apartments and whatever, and and we're all working on it. And I walked into the meeting. I said, "Guys, I got bad news." They said, "What's the bad news?" I said, "I'm leasing the shopping center." I said, "I got good news and bad news." I said, the good news is I'm leasing the shopping center and things are going great. We've got Safeway and people are really interested in the center and I think it's going to be a success. And I said, all right, what the heck could be the bad news? I said, well, forever as you're driving up Shady Grove Road, when people are going to give directions to the house, they're going to say, make a left at the Krispy Kreme. And they started cracking up because we have a Krispy Kreme on the corner. And, and the center's done great. And that's been a pleasure to, and Safeway's been a pleasure. I have a side story on that property as well. I had the opportunity to, to market, and I didn't close the deal, but I marketed South Riding over in Loudoun, in Loudoun sure. County. And my client was a guy by the name of Greg Cox, and he worked for- Sure, worked for, for us. Uh, right. Yeah. So he worked for uh, Trafalgar Homes at the time. So yeah. They were the seller for that. So then, unfortunately- this was 19, this was around 2000, and the land business is tough. And that's when I met Dwight Char, and I sat with Dwight, and I said, South Riding. He said, no, John, I'm not buying land. I'm done with land. We're not doing any more land deals. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> so, lurking was Toll Brothers. And, of course, they waited because, you know, he couldn't go to them. Well, we couldn't, we couldn't deliver. So Toll Brothers, whew, and of course, still controls the property. Yeah, But Greg felt bad because I worked really hard on trying to find a buyer for it. And I had a group out of Europe that was, you know, we were close. We had a contract. But anyway, so Greg said, John, I'm going to help you out. So he said, I just got hired by Falls Grove. And so he teed up two financings for me on townhouses. Oh, great. So I financed two-pound townhouse projects. Oh, excellent. At Falls Grove. Excellent. That's great. For Greg, for I, Greg and his client. I didn't know that. Time. Yeah. So it was just, that's great. It's kind of a, it was kind of a gratis move on his part. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, we've, I've thoroughly enjoyed Falls Grove. Hotel does well. The, the office building on Shady Grove is leasing up and we're going to start a multifamily project on Research Boulevard. But that little shopping center is once again, a little engine that can, it's grocery anchored, it's service oriented. It's, 100% leased. Is Falls Grove totally built out now? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's completely built out. Yeah. Nothing left there. Except for our multifamily on the Research Boulevard side. So Falls Grove was great. And then after Falls Grove, we built Dulles 28 Retail Center out on Route 28 with the Abramsons. Is that adjacent to the mall? No. It's uh, halfway up 28 on the left-hand side. It's where Wegmans is oh, and sure. Target. Oh, sure. So we sold the land to Target. We had right. sold the land to Walmart, who sold it to Wegmans. 
So there are shadow anchors. And then we built a strip facing both those. And that's done well. Yeah, center's done well. I mean, we've got, I mean, center's done surprisingly well in the sense that it lived through 2006, 2007, 2008, not 2006, but 2007, 2008, 2009. And the mini anchors there, DSW, Ulta, <clears throat> Petco, Old Navy, they have, they've survived. They've done pretty, pretty well. And the food users have done well. So we're really happy with that center as well. I, I skipped over Annapolis Harbor Center that we built in the 90s. And that's been a magnificent center. Is that adjacent to Annapolis Mall? No, it's on the opposite side. It's on Solomon's Road, Solomon's Island Road. It has a theater in it, Fresh Market. Um, I was there this past Saturday. It's an Amish Amish market, and it was mom. So that center we built with Steve Gutman. Oh, sure. Yeah, and we still have that center. So I would tell you our retail strip centers are doing fantastic. And and then now, did you manage the office building developments as well? I mean, Flat Hill and all. No, that. I didn't manage those developments. That that really fell under the purview of Mark Lerner. Got it. Mark was in charge of Mark. Mark. Mark was in charge of all development, but candidly, early on, I I I did most of the retail with with him. And the Tyson Two office. That's all, Mark. Okay. That's Mark's. And the hotel, the Ritz Carlton. Ritz Carlton was a ground lease. We did it with Homart. We ground leased it. The building itself was built by somebody else. But all the office buildings that you see in Tyson's 2 are really Mark Lerner having constructed them. His architectural insight, mm-hmm. he has a keen insight <clears throat> for architecture. And also our, our more recent multifamily projects are all Mark sitting with, with, with a team and doing architectural analysis. So I, I, my, my world was and continues to be zoning strip centers and regional malls, but we're not doing any more regional malls. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of like becoming an expert at the 45 RPM record business and then realizing that they're not there anymore. <laughs> I, I, I know how to build a regional mall, but that's not going anywhere. Yeah. You know, so the strip centers are fun. And, yeah. and I like zoning multifamily. I did all the zoning at Dulles town center. I like zoning office buildings, but I'm just not, I'm not the person to look to for office analysis. I don't, I, 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 I know the models. I, I've studied it, but I don't know it. I didn't build any of the buildings at Tyson's too. Our beautiful new building, 1775, I didn't, Mark handled the construction of that and, and oversaw, oversaw that with people within the organization. That's gotten much bigger, obviously. The building we're in here, this was Abramson that developed this? And, and Abramson and Lerner, joint, well, joint development. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. And then talk about the evolution of White Flint Mall and what happened there a little bit. I mean, the, the whole situation, that well, was an interesting situation. You know, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting is the, interesting, I don't know if interesting is the word. I think interesting is a word. I loved that property when I first moved here. Yeah, I mean, interesting I is a, there every I think interesting is a, is, a good, is a good word to use. The entire regional mall business, think about the, the heyday of regional mall business in the 80s. Yes. I mean, it's just amazing. Yes. And it, it was the town centers and people would go in there and you would shop there and people would go there. And they would be entertained and they'd have coffee and they'd, they'd shop around. And if you needed something, you went to the mall. It was always there. Go to a theater. Go to whatever. a theater. Go yeah. for dinner. But, but lo and behold, in the 90s and early 2000s, 
two things I think crept into society. One clearly was the internet. And there were early, there were early companies even beyond Amazon before Amazon was Amazon that you could buy products online and sure. and maybe delivery wasn't sufficient, but you could get it online. Well, the department stores started doing it themselves. Yeah. And then second was the fact that everybody started to sell everything. Sort of like that movie. Everything, everywhere, all at once. You could go to Target and get something. You could go to Walmart and get something. You could go to the mall. And it was all the same stuff. You, you didn't have to go to the department store anymore to buy a swimsuit. You could get it any place you wanted. You could get it in Target. You could get it in, in stores that were adding. You get CVS. And off price, off, but off price didn't hurt us that much because it be, it was its own niche. I mean, it was its own branding. You, they they manufactured clothes for their off price. It wasn't Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Mills, Mills it was it was it was a product line. Right. Right. I, I had less problem with the off price than I did with the fact that everybody was selling everything all the places, everywhere you went, you got the same. Everything became why don't we put that in our stores, and then the uh, online and. So then what happened was uh, some of the rocks of the industry started to fall apart. The uh, Garfinkels, the iMagnons, the Woodward and Lothrops, then eventually the Sears, then eventually the Lord and Taylors. And these are the rocks. You, you know, you didn't go into, you, you, I, I didn't walk into Ted Lerner and say, hey, let's build a regional mall of 350,000 square feet. I got no anchors. You know, it was, you only would build 350,000 feet because you had the anchors that people were going uh, across the way to. And when those anchors began to fail in not attracting the people to come to the centers the way they had done in the 80s and went out of business, then eventually your smaller stores started to feel the effect of it and they went out of business. So I'm a witness to the deterioration of the regional mall business and never thought it was going to happen. I have to admit, you asked the question, what were some of the bad decisions I've made? I made a really bad decision in believing that a structure of that size and magnitude would not fail. Look at this beautiful million four square foot building. How can a million four square foot building surrounded by 4,500 parking spaces fail? Wrong, wrong. It failed because what produces, it fails because what produces the income to stabilize it is deteriorating. I had a friend, Pete Henry, who's a, as I suggest you talk to, he used to have an expression, quality of the cash flow. The quality of the cash flow <clears throat> would uh, deteriorate. And, and the quality of the cash flow started to deteriorate in the regional mall business. And it's continuing to deteriorate. Now, will there be one or two regional malls that survive, like Montgomery Mall and Tyson's 1 and Tyson's 2? Yes. Seems to be still the idea that people want to go for a morning or an afternoon and socialize and go to stores and have an instant gratification of buying something and taking it home and not waiting for the box the next day <clears throat> or two days later. But to me, White Flint was, I, I just didn't understand how that property could 
deteriorate like it did. I mean, I, maybe the closing of the I Magnon, which of course orders then to backfill, and that was an interesting, you know. Well, Borders was successful. Yeah. Bloomingdale's was successful. Lloyd Taylor was successful. Yeah. What happened to White Flint? It was, and Ted had Ted was genius. I mean, he 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 saw the he was so smart. He could see the future, and he, he saw the deterioration of the product line. He saw the <clears throat> tenants coming in who were just not the tenants that he had known in the seventies and eighties and nineties, and he he just saw it happening. So in the two thousands came he started to say, it's not going to succeed. We've got to come up with a different plan. And that's when we started working on a different plan. The, the other thing that, you know, I, I, it, it just were elements of, of White Flint that started to deteriorate. You know, Georgetown on the third level and the restaurants on the third level. People weren't going up to the third level anymore. And, and yet we did, we did a deal with, what's the game company, Dave & Buster's. And that worked out fine for a while. But Ted could see the deterioration in the product line and where it was going. And he said, this is just not going to succeed. And he was right. I mean, he's absolutely right. He was absolutely right at White Flint and absolutely right at Landover. He had to turn the page and think of what's going to happen beyond it. Because you just can't, you just, it's like, what are you doing? You're, you're trying to dig a hole in the sand as the water's coming in. You just, the tsunami is coming. You, you can see it. Montgomery Mall is suffering and Tyson's is suffering. White Flint's going to suffer. I mean, you're going to look what happened to Lord and Taylor. Went out of business. Bloomingdale decides to go to downtown Friendship Heights. But what happens? You got a vacant store and you got Lord and Taylor who eventually goes out of business and Borders who goes out of business. So you have all, wait a minute. Ted, Ted never convinced himself that the facts in front of them were, were incorrect, mm-hmm. you know, and continue to move forward. Damn the torpedoes, full steam ahead. He just wouldn't do it. He was too bright. He said, if there are facts, I'm going to act on the facts. I'm not going to delude, be delusional and think that something's going to turn its way around when Bloomingdale's leaves to go into another location that's not a regional mall. And Lord, Lord and Taylor's got problems. I imagine Borders goes out of business. What are you going to do? So in 1992, we had the loan on Tyson's too. I was servicing it for Aetna. Okay. And Homart had taken control of the mall at that point to manage it and operate it. So we went through a workout on that property. There you go. 92. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Well, that was the RTC yeah. problems yeah. with the yeah. lens yeah. loans. Yeah. Well, the problem with it, you know, at that point, the mall needed to be reconfigured. And we, that's when yeah. a guy named Dan Foy, I remember, with Homart, yeah. had the vision. And he came in and, and looked at a food court idea yeah. and to attract the office tenant you know, yeah. population into the mall. And it changed the whole complexion of the property yeah. when that happened. You know, I, this is going to sound odd, but I'll say it anyway. I love the regional mall business. Yeah. Okay. I've loved it since I was 27 years old. 26 years old when I started. My dad was a retailer. So I'm addicted to it. Does it exist on some level? Does it exist on a B level or a C level? Yeah. That people might go into a C mall and yep. walk around and get a piece of pizza and see a movie? Yep. Yes, it exists on some level. Is it, is it, does, will it produce income? Yes, it will produce income. Is it going to be what it was? Never again. Never again will it be what it, what it was. 
it, it's gone. That model of I'm a major department store, put in Pennies, put in Sears, put in Macy's, put in Nordstrom is over. You might get a Nordstrom in, a, in, a, in an environment that they want to be in or a Macy's in another environment, but it will not be a regional mall. Yet the power of that attraction, I, I think I think water seeks its own level. I think at some point it'll, it'll level out whether you'll go there. I go to Montgomery Mall every once in a while just mm-hmm. to see it. I go to Dulles Town Center still just to see what's going on. I think on some level it'll exist. It's just not... It's just not going to be the Abercrombie and Fitches and the... When you go to Tyson's One, though, in Christmas, in the holiday season... It's very busy. Oh, my God. That's just like it used to be. Yeah. I mean, it's always been busy. Yeah. One of the smart things, one of the smartest, one of the smartest things they're doing is you can't tell temp tenants anymore from real tenants. It used to be able to go down to a mall and you'd look and go, that's a temp tenant because the right. sign right. Was, you know, was selling dresses or something. Now you walk by, you say, oh, my God, a new dress store. Because they're spending a lot of money on making sure that the visual from the outside mm-hmm. is looks like a real tenant. When it's a temp tenant on a 30-day leash that, that, that re-ups every 30 days. That's, that's a pretty smart move. I, I think that'll help buoy the, the end result. But we'll never do a regional mall again as a company. We will do other shopping centers. We're begging to do other shopping centers if people have them, land that they'd sell us. Uh, we're begging to do more multifamily. We want to do more multifamily. Office has been difficult. Everybody realizes that because of COVID. I interviewed Don Wood of he Federal. Did. Great. And it was interesting because I asked him about the mall business. He said, you know, we never really wanted to do that. And the company never really evolved that way. And they just really looked at location and wanted to do the the mixed-use environment because Santana Row was this great big thing that yeah. they built. Yeah. Almost took the company down. Yeah, no question. With the fire and all the issues they had. Yeah. But they that concept, of course, this, you know, like Bethesda Row and then, of course, now Pike and Rose. Steve Gutman, he's a genius. He saw things. He saw things in the future. The story about Don and Steve was interesting. You know, Don looked at Steve because Steve was going to, I mean, Santana Rose was his thing. He said, yeah. you want that. And it just... Was Steve's thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, so was Bethesda. Yeah. But it was too much. And and Don looked at him. He said, we're not going to... This company's not going to survive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the inner workings that... So they had a... You don't like see, this yeah. And yeah. You don't see... Bye, Steve. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it. but still the vision was incredible for those things. I think Bethesda is just amazing with created there and i think i think what do you think of pike Road? oh i love it i personally love it yeah I, first of all i'm in awe of anybody's ability to do that okay so it's quite a price so call me a groupie call me a right a big fan yeah i see somebody taking a piece of land and putting those buildings yeah. putting in the, the toys r us anchored shopping center well i'm putting in those buildings and and putting up the equity and borrowing the money and making it work the adventure of it, the yeah. fact that they say they're going to go do it, yeah. I applaud them. The fact that, God willing, hopefully they're successful, I applaud that. If they're not, I still applaud you for the effort. I, To me, when you can change, and this is a little bit of how I feel about development, when you can change the course of history, when you can create something that changes history, that's a 
powerful, powerful thing. It is. You, whether it's vacant land that's been vacant forever, yeah. vacant since God made it, and you put something on it that benefits a community, that's changing the course of history. And I look at Pike and Rose, and I, my, my, I, I applaud it. I applaud the adventure. Um, to me, it's why I get up every day and put my pants on and come to work. The dynamic nature of it, the excitement of it, that, that's why I'm in the business. That's why I'm in the business. So you, you mentioned the office market, and I, I would like to get your perspective on that, if I can, some thoughts on that, yeah. and where you see it going. Uh, yeah. Well, where I see it going, well, I wish I knew the answer to that. There's no question that there are issues today in the office market, this being, for historical purposes, April of 2023. And it did start as a result of COVID. I mean, can you imagine the world saying, let's have a timeout, everybody go home for 16, 18 months and work out of your houses, and we'll see how that works out for society. I mean, that's, no one would have done it, but they had the great experiment called COVID. And the great experiment called COVID will be analyzed for the next 30 years. Everybody will look back on it and say, what happened in, to the world in that period in which people stayed home in their houses and did not interact in offices and retail and things? How did society change? So we'll be studying this from, a, from many macro levels for a very, very long time. On an immediate basis, I mean, the federal government's not back. I mean, things are, things are crazy. Things are not normal as we knew normal in 2019 and before. Will they get more normal? I think the answer is yes. We're going to go back, I think, to a large extent because uh, people, people are creatures of interaction. They want to be with each other. They don't want to work on screens. They do want to touch and feel and, and be part of something. I think it'll come back. It's going to come back slowly, but it will come back. Will it come back to 100%? I don't think so. I think the experiment has proven to, to generation X, Y, and Z, or whatever they are, that maybe employers will allow them to work from home to make money. For example, an attorney. You can bill me nine hours out of your house, or you can bill me nine hours out of your office. What difference does it make? And if I can reduce my footprint at the office space by having you bill nine hours out of your house, I'm going to do it. Yeah, but imagine coming out of law school and saying, you're going to sit in front of a screen and do your work and, you know, type your contracts at home, and you don't have any instruction from a partner. Just remember who you're dealing with. You're dealing with lawyers. They traditionally sit in front of screens and are isolated people. They sit and study in cubicles. Well, but there will be, but they'll satisfy that. There'll be classes that will either be online or in person. They'll have parties every once in a while. In other words, there's going to be... There's a mentorship process. Though. And I think there is, but there's going to be a change in the way it was. I don't think it's going to be 2019. I think it's going to be somehow modified. I do think it's going to swing back to a large extent. But I will tell you what we've learned is it's a flight to quality in office buildings. Oh, yeah. So to the extent that you're going to downsize, yeah, where absolutely. do I want to be? Tyson's too. I want to downsize at Tyson's too. Because number one, I'll pay the same amount of money, but now I have less square feet, but I'll pay the same amount of money because the rent's higher. But I, look at my space. When people come to see me, I have two regional malls to walk to, flight to quality. It's the class B mall, excuse me, class B office buildings, the ones out with no amenities, 
Those are the ones that are going to eke back. But will they eke back with smaller tenants? Yes. The truth of the matter is smaller tenants are better for office buildings. That's a little bit of a shocker to hear. But as much as I like large tenants, when large tenants leave, a lot bigger financial impact. Yeah, the office market is, <laughs> it's tough. Who knows what's going to happen, but yeah. it'll be interesting. Yep. So when the, when the opportunity presented itself to Mr. Lerner to acquire the Montreal Expos to relocate to Washington, D.C. and become the, the Washington Nationals, he seized upon it. Perhaps discuss that evolution and how you were involved, Art. Well, actually, Major League Baseball had purchased the Montreal Expo. They moved them to Washington. Oh, okay. I'd forgotten that, yeah. And uh, we're operating them. That was about 05, wasn't it? 05? Yeah, 05. Uh, Actually, 05. And they wanted to select a a buyer. They wanted to sell the team. Right. For, at the time, $450 million. $450 million. And uh, Ted had always been interested in professional sports. We had been on the, no secret, we had been on the Washington Commanders, back when uh, Schneider, we came in second to Schneider. That's too bad. And Ted, Ted, <laughs> Ted had worked hard on that. Yeah, yes. he had worked hard on that. So he want, so he put his bid in and very respectful, but selling. And really, that was wonderful to watch because I had little enough, no involvement in that, other than when confidentially people would ask my opinion on something. It was really the family. It was Mark and Ed, Bob and Ted, and Marla and Debbie. Judy and Annette. It was a family discussion, and then the, and the family through 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 Bob, Ed, Mark, and Ted negotiated with Major League Baseball, and it was really a selection process where Selig said to I guess for what I could see, you're all capable, but I choose the Lerner family because of their history, their love of baseball, but their history, their their financial stability the way they operate, the way they govern, and the rest is history. And, and it's, a, it's a very hard business. I mean, people look at it and say, you know, maybe baseball's a, a glamorous business or it's not that hard. Baseball is a business, and it's very, very, very hard. You're working 24-7 every month of the year to put together a product and to put the right chemistry together. So it's... <laughs> We've been in the business since 2006, opened up the stadium in 2008, but my God, you can't imagine the amount of effort that goes into putting a product on a field. It's, it's very hard. And, and Alan Gottlieb has worked on it very, very hard. He's a CMO of Learner Sports, and Mark Lerner has worked on it, and every bed, and Bob, and Ted, they work on it, worked on it very, very hard. What's interesting about baseball is you've got the farm system which, you know, all those teams below, you know, that you have to feed up and then all the recruiting piece and to have a general manager like the Nationals have is yeah. magical. I mean, he's no, we don't team. own the farm teams. We, those oh, farm really? teams are owned by other individuals. Okay. But we, 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 we provide the players and, and, mm-hmm. and, and they work their way up. It's a system within Major League Baseball. But it's a hard business. I mean, operating the stadium is a hard business. The, the amount of people you have to have, the... How you, how you serve food, what the concession stands, the product you put on the field. Major, 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 major enterprise. Well, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of analogies to retail 
to, to operating a baseball team, right? Because yeah. you're putting, you're entertaining. It's a, it's, it's that. Yeah. But you told me separately that you were involved in construction of a project down in Florida. Um, there, talk about that. Story yeah. Well, fortunately, fortunately for me, I was originally involved in the construction of the stadium here. Oh, you were. Um, okay. But they needed a they they needed a project representative to go to the meetings at RFK and sit with the various divisions, the government, the contractor, the accountants, and, and the team. Who chose Clark? Clark Clark was chosen, I believe, by the city before us. Clark Huntsmoot before us. And uh, and they we actually when we were awarded, it was very the next day or something was groundbreaking or something like around a week later. And we, we, we all you know, went over to the groundbreaking, which are the famous pictures. But the construction was had started. They were, they were essentially groundbreaking the stadium and had awarded it under the bonds. And they had done a lot of work to, to, to move it forward, the city, to their credit, move the project forward. So I was fortunate enough that there was so much to do. Mark was looking at architectural design. Like the the bar in center field was one level. It's now two. They had given us an analog screen, not a high definition screen. There were upgrades there. Learners put 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 million dollars, mm. you know, of their own funds to make the stadium better. People don't really realize that at the time that we were constructing it. So I got to sit in the room for two years and work on the construction of that. So then we opened up. And the rest is history. So when when our when our lease was was our lease was coming up in Central Florida on our spring trading facility, mm-hmm. the team and Mark started looking for an opportunity, and we were first gonna we were first gonna go to Orlando in Kissimmee and Osceola County, and and believe it or not, when it came up for vote, they turned us down. It literally turned down locating a major league spring training facility. Wow. The, the Houston Astros were leaving, and we were going to go right across the street in a new facility, and the Braves were still there at Disney. Well, since they turned us down, the Astros left. We didn't go, and the Braves left. So literally, Central Florida has no major minor league baseball team anymore. And, and, it, and it was sort of weird because... Here we thought we, we were a major attraction for the community, and they turned on us. I mean, they just didn't like, they didn't want Major League Baseball there, in my opinion. I lived through it, so I can speak how I feel about it. And so we got a phone call from a guy named Mark Foley, who had been a former congressman in the Washington, in the West Palm Beach area. Mm-hmm. He, called, he called up through some friends and got through to, got through to the team, who then got to Mark and then Mark and Mark, Mark Foley and Mark Lerner met, and then Mark Lerner introduced me to Mark Foley and back in, I want to say, 14, 2014, maybe 13, maybe 2013. And then 2014, we started to work on where our site might go. And, that, and that's when I stepped up because I knew that it was going to be a combination of site selection, which ultimately involved Mark and others, but Contract negotiation with the city, with the city of West Palm Beach and Palm Beach County. Contract negotiations with Palm Beach County. It was going to be zoning because it wasn't zoned. 
and it was going to be construction, bringing in Hunt Construction. It was going to be finance because there were bonds involved and we were using the first and sixth penny to pay off some industrial bonds. So I said, well, it's just kind of all my trades. I, I can build it and I can negotiate the deals because I know baseball enough and I can negotiate the contracts from a legal standpoint. I can fin help finance it through the bonds and I can sit in the trailer for 18 months and make sure the stadium's getting built and making sure we're being treated fairly by the construction company because I've been in construction litigation. So it really, the, the, whole, the whole thing of it, I ended up writing a white paper to give to Major League Baseball, which I don't think they've used. But the bottom line was I said that I could, I could combine all the things I knew how to do, build, negotiate, on draft the contracts, draft the agreements, and finance. So Mark and Ted and others sent me down there for essentially four years, three and a half, four years, and working on it. The rest is history. It's a beautiful project, and we did it with the Houston Astros, and I'm very happy and proud to have been a part of it. Very lucky that you know they, they gave me a chance to go do it. And so the uh, does the, the, do you own the stadium? The stadium is owned by the county. It's owned by the county. Bobby's County. We leased it for oh, a long term. Thirty five years or whatever. Okay. Thirty one years with this option. Thirty one years. Was there a? Did you have a counterpart for the Astros? Yes. You? Yes. Yeah. So you work with that person? Yes. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I, I've often wondered how teams. Uh, I guess they have to figure the schedule out to share the stadium because they have to. Balance, yeah, you know who does what. Yeah, the Houston Astros had their section. We had our section, but and, and then in the middle of the share the stadium. But the biggest thing was the documents and the documentation and understanding all the legal agreements. And you know, the county wasn't easy. I mean, the county made demands on us, and then understanding state regulations and how much money the state was going to give into the project, and then the demands on us vis-a-vis -vis the state. I mean, it was major, and then literally awarding a $156 million budget for construction and making sure you, that it's being constructed, probably hired construction managers. There were letters, I want extension of time, I want more money, and we were fighting on change orders. All the lovely stuff you do in construction litigation. I was following concrete trucks to the dumps to see if the, <laughs> if the chunks of Concrete that they're dumping out were too large, thereby adding weight to the trucks because I was mad that we were being overcharged. I mean, all that. I'm climbing through garbage rubbles at, in the local and the local landfill. And so, and as I say, that's the stuff I love to do. So, and and it was a hard four years, but in the end, the product was good. That's great. Yeah. So, as I mentioned right up front, Mr. Lerner passed away earlier this year. So... Talk about the, the legacy of the company now, uh, now that Mr. Lerner is gone, and of course Mark and Bob and all the other senior management. Uh, I assume yeah. things are going to move forward, you know, as it's been going, or is there a different think thinking going? Oh, forward? it's definitely going to move forward. Yep. You know, Ted Ted was always on the two hundred year plan ever okay. since the day I met him. Right. Uh, he always set things up to exist beyond his time on this earth. You know, Ray Kroc had the expression, when you're growing, you're green, and when you're ripe, you rot. So we're just not going to be just ripe. We're going to continue to grow as an organization under this leadership. 
fortunately for us, the next generation is coming into the company. They're all taking an active role, wonderful people, hard workers. They're all going to take an active role moving forward. So the company was established and, 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 and had its growth in the, in the TED era. It'll now continue to grow in the next generation, generation two era. And then G3, the generation that's coming in now, who are in their 30s, late 30s, are going to continue to grow the company. Because we are on the, a new 200-year plan. I mean, there's no there's planning for G4 now or whatever. So it's a family-run organization that, that's going to continue. Well, fortunately for us, we have land holdings. We have vast land. We probably have three or four billion-dollar projects that we can still do. I mean, right. billion-dollar projects. And we just need to continue to move forward and find ways to bring those things into fruition. So the companies under the leadership that Ted set up here now with the children and the son-in-laws and it's, it's established. I mean, Ted was very, you know, definitive and everybody was, co- everybody cooperates. Family gets along wonderfully. So, and, and, and is he missed? Of course he's missed. I mean, he's just a wonderful guy. The thing about Ted I'd like to express to people who didn't know him was just how fundamentally humble he was. I mean, just a, an amazingly humble individual, no pretense, drove his own car well into his nineties until he had somebody start to drive him because it got difficult at night. Um, never was flashy, abhorred pretentiousness, didn't like people who were pretentious, didn't like people who were ego, had egos. Ted was just a hardworking guy, humble guy. Lives in the same house he built in 1960. I mean, that's just amazing. I mean, he built a house in 1960, 1959, 1960, 61. Still lives in the same house. I mean, how many people of his wealth would have established that? They just wouldn't have done that. Look at Warren Buffett. Same right, thing. same thing. Yeah. There's just no pretense. You just, and that's the kind of guy he was. Simple guy. I used to have breakfast with him. He'd have bagel chips and egg white and sit there and, and, and people would see him. He, you know, he would never, it was baseball that kind of put him into the more of the limelight, but he, he did not, he, he just was a, a really, and, and he was a hardworking guy and he always was th- thinking about the next thing. What, what's the next thing we're doing? Where are we going? What are we doing? There was no rest in his mind for the next deal. None. Not, not into his, well into his 90s. He's 97, 95, 96. He used to walk in my office and sit down and say, where are we, what are we doing? Where are we going? What's happening? And I used to cherish those moments. So, you know, any of the craziness about him being litigious and stuff, it's just wrong. It's made for television kind of JRU and, you know, somebody's successful. They must be a bad person. It's just not Ted. Uh, he was just not that kind of guy. He was, he didn't, he didn't, he was always wonderful to me and uh, always wonderful to my family. He gave me opportunities that to do things. He was dynamic. Just, I, I've done more things than anybody could have possibly imagined. So well, I'm, I'm, you, you mentioned real early on about your family that you, they were all entrepreneurs and you weren't, you weren't. Yeah. And there had to have been a reason because you certainly have the personality to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> well, you know, but Ted gave me that opportunity. See, but that's the thing that I think you're absolutely correct. I, I, I think if you focus in on that, it's a Ted always gave me the opportunity to be creative. He never stifled creativity. May not have agreed with it, 
but he never stifled it. He always encouraged me and others to be creative because he was creative. And, and as long as you understand that it's creative for the good of the company and not creative selfishly, there were people who in the past were creative selfishly. They didn't last. Ted was about creative for the good of the company. He, you would benefit in that. He told me that early on, and I believed him, and he was right. And I benefited from it creatively. So he scratched that itch for me, obviously. I'm still here. But he gave you a lot of latitude, obviously. Tremendous latitude. Tremendous latitude in negotiating, in zoning. Um, now, there were things, like in any organization, there are things you have to bring back for approval. Of course. Because it's money, and we can't have people going out doing things and spending money without checks and balances. That's just part of being in a big company. Mm -hmm. If you're an entrepreneur, maybe you make those decisions, those decisions individually. But if you're a big company, you don't make those decisions individually, even in a big company. You're, you, if you're going to be a successful big company, those decisions are going to be made by, by a lot of people who are have insight into things that maybe you don't as an individual. Well, my guess is that Ted went to his children occasionally to just ratify some decisions occasionally, just to make sure that you know, oh, he no, was no. doing the right thing. Oh, he, but, well, no, no, the, the, in the last 15, 20 years, it's been board decisions. You know, everybody oh, okay. gets a vote, yeah. 20, 30, 25 years. Board decisions, not just Ted. Right. Ted would, would speak his opinion, but he didn't always win in a discussion. But for me, that entrepreneurial spirit that's instilled in me, I can't get rid of it. I, I don't want to. He... He enabled me to, and to this day, even with his passing, um, it's stronger now than ever. I, I see that he, he, he wanted he he wants me to be doing the basic things that help support the organization. But at the same time, he wants me to be creative if I can see an opportunity to better his organization. And that, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful. Look at the dynamic things that I got a chance to do. Had I been a, a sole practitioner, entrepreneur, working in the area, yes, maybe I'd have three or four multifamily projects and maybe I'd have a small office building or maybe I'd have well, a couple of shops. <laughs> I'd have shopping centers, right? Yeah. Okay. Look at the things I've worked on. Two stadiums. Yeah. Five, six, seven, eight strip centers. That, that guy looking out that window, looking at that Tyson's Corner regional mall right. and saying, hey, do I do that? Right. I did Dulles Town Center. I zoned it all the way through, yeah. cut the ribbon. Yeah. Ted let me do that. Yeah. He let me be the guy who, many people can do that. who looked out that window and said, how do you build a regional mall? He let me do it. I mean, from the first deal there to the end was what, 12 years to get that that project built? Well, from a, well, first time you saw the site. You know. First time I saw the site was 1986. Yep. We opened it up in 99. Yeah, so years. 13 years. Yeah. He let me fly around the country. He let me sit in the room with the department stores. He let me negotiate entirely the REA. He let me negotiate every supplemental agreement. He let me award the contract on the construction and yeah. negotiate the construction contract. He let me go to the trailer to build it. He 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 gave me every sensation of entrepreneurially building that thing from start to finish. That look that I looked out that window at that regional mall at Tyson's Corner Center and said, what does it take to build that? I'd like to do that someday. He 
gave me that chance. That's Isn't that great. great? That's phenomenal. Huh? Isn't that amazing? You couldn't have dreamed that when you were thinking about your career at the time, I imagine. I could not have dreamed that. And then the shopping centers that we've done together and in the apartments that I'm proud of going and the hotels. I mean, he gave me every shot. He was so kind to me. Didn't have to do it. And he went even beyond that. He just was always, he was the kind of guy who just gave me a chance to be creative. And, and I'm so forever grateful to him for, you know, for the rest of my life, forever grateful for him giving me that shot, the dynamic nature of it. So you mentioned the legacy. How do you see with the markets today? And we talked about some of the problems. So you've got you got a big site at White Flint. I don't know what you're going to do with the Landover piece. I mean, there are huge tracts of land that you have that have development potential. So how do you see? I mean, do you see? Do you have a vision for that now? I mean, what 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 is the thought process going forward with some of these large tracts of land today? What do you do today? It's not easy. I'll give you the answer that Ted would give you. Okay. Patience. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Patience. Yeah, Did anybody think that data centers were going to come into the world and all of a sudden you're selling land for enormous amounts of money in data centers? Yeah. No. But if you didn't have patience and you had developed a strip center or townhouses, you never would have had the highest land sale in the history of Virginia that we had and no one knows about. At the end of the day, Patience. And that was Ted's main philosophy. Carry the property, patience. So everything you mentioned, it'll happen. Yeah. Just be patient. Mm-hmm. He would tell you that if you're sitting mm-hmm. here. So you just bide your time or just kind of keep your eyes open. Assimilate. Go to work ideas. every day. Right. Figure it out. Look for something coming over the horizon. Don't ignore it. Read. Focus. See. See new opportunities. Go see what people are doing. Don't sit on your laurels, but don't rush what it is you have. Don't rush it. What, you know, as I walked into your office, I noticed that you had poor Charlie's Almanac out there on the, on the, on the desk. Oh, really? With, which is Charlie, Warren Buffett's yeah. sidekick, Charlie Munger. Yeah, yeah, story. of course, yes. And what you just talked about, that patience is what, that's the Warren Buffett philosophy on all of his business. He said, I make two, two decisions a year, maybe. And they're huge decisions, but I wait and I'm willing to yeah. just wait for that fat pitch and then I'll hit. Yeah. That's and that was, and right. that is, so whether it's White Flint, Landover, right. the second phase of the Spectrum at Reston Town Center that's got 1,400 apartments right. and 700,000 square feet of office, mm-hmm. whether it's what's going to go on next to the Metro at Tyson's too, right. we don't know. But just be patient. There you go. That's great. That's and you can afford to. Obviously. That's right. <laughs> That's the other right. piece. Of That's it. right. Exactly. <laughs> right. So what the, the structure is? The family is that, and then as far as hiring in that, how, how, tr- talk to me about the organization and how it it comes together and it's put together. And well, everything's run how by a vertical. Is it? as far as different disciplines. It's more vertical now than it's been. It's There's a board okay. that's essentially made up of the families. And, uh, Are there outside family members? Outside members of the family? Outside family? N- not the voting board, no. Okay. But but then ultimately, it's a, it's a family-run organization. You would expect right. that. But then we have you know CFO, and we have a head of residential management, 
head of retail management, head of management. So there's a COO, a CFO, and we have a wonderful IT department. Um, so, and then, and then people have different roles within the company, they have a major accounting division, they have a treasurer. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's set up to run very efficiently and we have regular board meetings. But you never want to get in the construction business per se. As far as, you know, we, we didn't want to get building, in building, yeah. Well, we did early on, back in the early 80s and 90s, we were doing some construction, but we we always found it a little bit. Listen, I don't even know how construction companies are making it on some of the fees they're charging today because when you think they're just managing outside subs for three, three and a half, four percent, maybe they, they figure out how to buy it down. It's a lot of work for a little money, and but we're, 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 we're proud to be using and some risk. We use Whitey Turner and we use other Pitt and others, and great companies, and we're very happy using them. Mm-hmm. So the organization's well run. That's great. So when you hire people, what characteristics do you look for? That's a, that's a, I mean, that's a great question, I, I think. I guess for me personally, over the years when I've hired people, the I look for, I look for a couple of things. I look for... Some intellectual ability. I mean, I look for, can the person intellectually handle what it is we're about to ask them to do? Eventually, with not a lot of guidance and eventually with not a lot of help because we're not a group that everybody's got to pull their own weight. So I look to see if they're intellectually capable. I look a little bit at their past history. Where have they worked? What have they done? What experiences do they have? And then, I guess, third, I look for their enthusiasm. Do, are they enthusiastic about coming here? Is it a stepping stone to something else, or is it something they're going to stay here for a while? So I'd say intellect, followed by past experiences to draw upon and to bring to the table. And then lastly, what is your enthusiasm? Uh, are you enthusiastic about being here and having an opportunity to work within a learner organization. That's been sort of how I've looked at people over the years. Okay. And some recent hirings. Sure. You've worked and dealt perhaps with thousands of people in your career. Other than Ted, which people stood out to you as inspirations and why? You know, it's it's an interesting question. I I, I did I think first of all, I, I mentioned I mentioned Pete Henry. Right. You gotta go talk to Pete. It's just Pete. one of the if, Pete, Pete is one of the smartest people. I've met Pete. I've, I've I have, he's, he's one of the smartest people yep. in the real estate business I've ever met. And he can tell you stories about his ups and downs that are just floor anybody. But anybody who wants to see a success story and a self-made man, talk to Pete. I used to like Mel Lincoln, Mark's father-in-law. Mel Lincoln was a real driven, nice man to me. Always pleasant. I enjoyed him. Over the years, I've enjoyed my interaction with Ray Ritchie. You know, here's a guy who hustles. You know, everybody likes Ray, but there's a reason everybody likes Ray. Is he's he's focused. He he looks. He's got a big heart. He looks out for people. Looks out for the people within his organization. I mentioned early on in my career who I've been influenced by. I do think that the Intergate guys, Jack Andrews, Jerry O'Connell, and Steve Hubert, were good close friends in the '80s, and they did things. Bob Buchanan was a good friend back then, and he did things. 
Today, I think the people in the industry, if you haven't talked to Stan Slaughter yet. I know Stan. He's a, he's a guest. Yeah. I mean, he's, 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 he's a podcast guest. Yes. Yeah, Stan's a magnificent guy to talk to. Bob Youngentob is fantastic. Yep. I'm sure I'm leaving people out. But when I go back to my regional mall days, you know, by the Birnbaums and the Simons and the Todmans and, the, you know, when you were hustling as a young, you know, if anything, I thought that I could continue to build regional malls for the rest of my life, maybe outside the Washington area, because sure. I, I know how to do them. I, I, yeah. I was intimate in Tyson's too, although I did not put it together. But Dulles Town Center, I put together from start to finish and you know, worked with others, but I put it together. It was my baby, and Ted let me do it. I could do five more of those. The most complicated real estate development of all, except maybe what federal's done at Pike and Rose because you have... And that's even amazingly complicated. But I would have loved to have done more regional malls, but I'm not going to do them. But in those days, I mean, the home arts of the world, the big corporations, I'd see them at conferences and things and i don't know that i but certainly i think you you mentioned this is besides the learner family and ed and mark and bob and ted because i've thoroughly enjoyed interacting with them and being inspired by them but clearly the inspirations come from interacting i mean rick debella he does does he does yeah we talked to rick another close friend and mentor over the years has been Jeff Dearman. Jeff Dearman had the general counsel position at Lerner a few years before I, I came. Jeff had come from Connecticut General uh, Life Insurance, who had done the loan on Landover Mall. And I believe at that point he had a relationship and Ted offered him a position. He came here and Jeff was instrumental in White Flint. I still see his signature on the construction operation and reciprocal easement agreement next to Ted and Sonny's as the witness. Mm-hmm. But uh, Jeff's been a great friend and a mentor for over 40 years. I first met him at the law conference when I first started with Ted, I guess in the early 80s, almost 40 years ago. And I introduced myself to him and he spoke very highly of Ted and the family. And, and, and he just is a smart guy and very good in real estate, lovely family, lovely wife, Tammy. And I've had a chance over the years to, to get to know his family, spend some time with him in Florida at his home. And he's just been a great mentor and friend and somebody who I've turned to over the years for advice and counsel, but truly one of my mentors. It's interesting that he's an attorney. You're an attorney. Mr. Lerner, I think, took, yes. was a, an attorney. Lerner, yeah. uh, a lot of people in this organization kind of had law as a background. Oh, sure. Is that, is that well, kind of a, a, a theme or something? Well, Ed Cohen is an attorney. And right. Robert Tannenbaum is an attorney. And Jonathan Lerner is an attorney. I don't know that it's a theme, uh, <laughs> but it certainly, it certainly is interesting that it turned out that way. I, I personally, as much as I enjoyed the law and still enjoy the law and still practice law here, my true love was always real estate. So I always wanted to use the knowledge that I gained in the legal profession and use that in the development of real estate. So that's why getting to know Jeff was a great thing because Jeff was an attorney and he had turned to development and did projects in Silver Spring and, and elsewhere, mm-hmm. uh, along with Walt Petrie, who's just sure. a wonderful guy. Walt's been a good friend over the years too. And once again, a mentor, somebody I would turn to and ask for advice and, and counsel and 
how to do a particular project. And Walt was very creative, always got something going. So, you know, I mentioned Walt and, and Jeff and Pete Henry, and of course, the, the, the best of them all, Ted Lerner. These are the people that have influenced me over the years. You said Sidney Brown. A lot of development. And Sidney Brown, he, he, he was amazing. I mean, he was amazing. I can tell you stories. It's beyond belief, you know, watching how powerful and how he fought people. And What was his relationship with Ted Lerner? Or did he have one? Not really. They knew each other, but they, didn't have, a, they didn't have a relationship. Uh, okay. But it was interesting over the years to so, so those are, that, 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 some of my inspirations some of my learning people you know so to speak. of course your dad i'm sure is a huge yeah. influence well major influence yeah yeah what are your life priorities among family work and giving back well i think you know it's it's interesting you say that because i used to have an expression when i was younger work to live not live to work I don't know when that switched on me and I became a person who lived to work, but I think it's sort of an interesting observation of myself that I probably still work to live, not live to work, but I do love working and I do love what I'm doing. I've always said I was able to do my hobby for a career. I could combine the law with building things and negotiating contracts or stadiums or whatever it was. And to me, that was just, Oh my God, look at the many and varied nature of that. It's just remarkable. First and foremost is my family. It always has been. What about your family a little bit? So I have a beautiful wife. I call her my trophy wife. She's, she's been with me now 40 years. And I have two sons and two daughters. My wife never went to college, but she sent the, one son to Princeton, one son to Yale, a daughter to Villanova, and a daughter to UVA. So she did pretty good raising those kids to get through those schools and to be the kind of people they are. She did the bulk of the work. And, and I love my kids. I mean, they're, they're, all, they're all gainfully employed. My oldest is, is in the financial end of tech companies. He lives in Boston with his wife, and he works for a company out of Boston. He's very, very bright, done, done very, very well on the, in tech and understanding how tech companies work. My second son works for Iron Point Partners for 13 years, Bill Janes. And uh, Joe's got the real estate bug. He's been in the business. He, he's, he's, a, he's brilliant at analyzing real estate transactions and finance. Working on data centers? He, he worked on the data center part of it for a little bit. Yes. But mostly, I think he's in storage centers. And Bill is a guest of mine. Bill's spectacular. Great yep. guy. Yep. Spectacular guy. Love him. Angela is, works at Aaron Fox with Bryson Filbert. Yes. She's excellent. She's been very well, well-educated, and she's, she's been helping us here on transactions, which I really like. And, my, and she's married. So those three are married. And my daughter who's not married is Maria. She's 31. And, and she is a math specialist at Holy Trinity Catholic Elementary School in Georgetown. Has been there for like... She's the tennis star. Yeah, she's the right? tennis, right? Yeah. I mean, she's been there maybe... She's, she's might have been there... In, Eight years. Wasn't maybe? she ranked? Oh yeah, she was. She was. She was a great tennis player. She she was in the mid. She was number one in the mid Atlantic for a long time, and then she worked her way up. And she was captain of the women's team at UVA, along with other great players. And my daughter was a good player. They was better players, but Aunt Maria's magnificent tennis player has a beautiful game. 
So my family is great. They, 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 three of them live in Washington. One lives in Boston. Very fortunate in that regard. We do get together. I cherish those moments. My father was still alive at 96. I got two brothers and a sister. We talk. I probably talk to my brothers once a day or once every other day. So the family's close and we're still doing things together. What about giving back? We don't talk politics. <laughs> giving back. So it's a really interesting question. I, over the years, I've given back through various organizations like the Nationals Foundation, the, the facility that we have over in Ward 7, and Nationals Philanthropies. I've given back at my children's high schools because my high school closed. So I've made sure that I financially support both Georgetown Prep and the Holy Cross. And I give back to my law school where I sit on the board at my law school and I do everything I can to give back because it was really the tools out of law school that gave me the opportunity to, to go on. I, 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 I'm asked a half a dozen times a year to like you, like you do mentor somebody, have somebody come meet art either from Villanova who wants to go into real estate or from Catholic university who's interested in real estate. And of course I always say, yes, I'm always amazed when people come back to me and say, all right, three years ago, you told me this, five years ago, you told me that. I thought that was interesting. I said, was I right? You know, it's so funny. <laughs> I, I, once in a while, Stan asked me to lecture. Once in a while, Steve Tattlebaum asked me to lecture from Ramada, and I'll do a lecture at American University on zoning and planning. I'm not as active in the less fortunate community as I want to be. I think that might be a phase coming up in the future. Uh, for me. Um, but I do stay active as best I can, both on the boards that I'm on, but also within the communities in which I'm giving money. And then I'm always open to helping people and talking to people. It's great art. Yeah. So what were the biggest wins, losses, and most surprising events in your career you can think about? Um, well, the, well, the biggest wins, I have to say, was my wife and, and my four kids. No question about that. Next to my biggest wins was getting the opportunity to sit at the foot of the master, Ted Lerner, for 40 plus years. That was a complete, utter win for me and a privilege to have that chance. I don't, had, I, had, I not, had I not answered that ad and gotten that opportunity, I don't know what direction my life would have taken. It would have been interesting to see. But clearly, when I look back on how it did unfold, next to my wife and, and, and children, it would be having had the opportunity to sit and learn from him. And to the day, the week, the month before he died, having come in my office and still get the same chills I got the first times he would come in my office and sit down. Because I always got a thrill when he opened the door and said, you got a minute? And he'd come in and he'd sit down. And, and he, we'd discuss something. And we discussed some very, you know, I was a lawyer and I was a per, personal confidant. So that's, that was, you know, really fantastic. So that, that was a win for me. The other win was getting opportunities to build some fantastic centers. From Dulles Town Center to these other strip centers. And I want to do more. I'm not done. I'm certainly not done. I want to do more centers. I want to do more development. There's just no, you know, it's, it's kind of not rude to say, but I'll be 96 in a wheelchair 
saying to somebody, look, I can put a CVS on that corner. Somebody give me a phone. I want to put a CVS here. And somebody will say, get that guy out of here. He's crazy. But I mean, it's just a business that you can do for the rest of your life. You, you don't have to stop real estate developing. So I think the win is getting into real estate. And the win was my parents, you know, having the opportunity to learn from them. My losses, <clears throat> I made some bad decisions on getting rid of properties that we shouldn't have gotten rid of. You know, not acting fast enough on a shopping center and somebody got in a week ahead of me and got it. Or not or giving up some land and we had under contract that I wish we didn't because it would, it would have just been great to develop those things. But you win some, you lose some. And the biggest surprise, the biggest surprise I think for me has been maybe just how much fun it's been. You know, I, I, I you have no idea whether you're going to really enjoy things that you do. I have friends who are retired and I look at him and I'd say, why are you retired? He says, well, you know, do you want to do this the rest of your life? I don't, meaning what he was doing. And I'm not like that. I, I, I do want to do what I'm doing the rest of my life. I, I don't want to you retire. You clearly have a passion. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to retire. It's just, <laughs> I, I don't retire from what I'm doing. It's, I like what I'm doing. It's a hobby. It's everything I do. So the biggest surprise is just how darn Darn, I like, darn much I like it. That's great. Yeah. That's great. So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self, Art? Yeah, that's interesting. What advice would I give my 25-year-old self? Yeah. Nothing is done in a straight line. There's going to be ups and there's going to be downs. Enjoy the ups and enjoy the downs to the extent you can. Learn from them. Learn from them. And in the end, if you stay focused, you'll move forward, even if there are times when you're stepping backwards. So I would have said to myself, stay the course just re and realize it's just not going to be a straight line. What do you tell your children? Or what did you I think my children, children, I think my children get that. I think they get that. I used to, when they were little kids, I used to come home. And then when they were young, we'd sit around the kitchen table and we're having dinner. And I would, and I guess my oldest was 12 or something. And I would say, Daddy made three mistakes today at work. And they go, what? I go, oh, I made, so, I made three mistakes. And the point I would say that was to show them that I was human. Show them that you can make a mistake and and learn from it, that you're going to make mistakes, just like daddy makes mistakes. You know, kids have this image of their father. Maybe he's perfect and does this and that. I'm not perfect. I made a mistake. I wanted to, I wanted to. That was wise to do. I was, I wanted to show them that I was that. And then I also wanted to teach them humility. You, which is what Ted Lerner taught me, as long as my, and my father taught me, which is, and my mother. Ultimately, I don't care how rich you are, what you have. What kind of person are you? There you go. What kind of person are you? Are you a nice person? Do you open the door for somebody? Do you, do you help somebody across the street if they visually impaired when you recognize it? Do you go out of your way to uh, make sure Thanksgiving is enjoyed by somebody who may not have enough food or there's going to be Christmas presents under a Christmas tree? I mean, what are you doing as a person? Because the money is nothing. It's, it's a lubricant, but it's nothing. If you think you're successful simply because you have money, then you're fooling yourself. 
So I, I would say that, you know, that's, that's sort of my, 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 my theory on it is. You proud of your children? Oh, I love my children. Sure. My, my children are amazing. I, I, what, I, what I really love about them is they're good human beings. That's great. You know, they're that's good great. human beings and they are active in helping people. I mean, my two sons, men for others, the, the Jesuit philosophy, they're always going out of their way to make sure people are okay. That's great. My oldest son is so sensitive to, to people's needs. He sees things that I don't even see, not even close to seeing. And, and one time somebody in the neighborhood didn't have a place to spend the night because his parents wouldn't let him come back in the house. And I says, Donna, you've got to let this kid get back to his house. Because dad, he can't get back in the house. And I said, he said, he's got to stay here. And I said, Donna, is that, he goes, dad, not everybody has the family we have. And I went, whoa, out of the mouths of babes, here comes my son giving me a life lesson. Okay. So, so I do love my kids. I think Angela's done phenomenal. And Maria is so beautiful and sensitive and helping children understand math and, a, and an institution doesn't pay a ton of money. She makes a good salary, but she's, she's dedicated. So yeah, I love, of course, I, my, I have two little grandchildren now too. So oh, that's, awesome. that's out of this world. Do you have grandchildren? Not yet. Okay. Good luck. I'll just say, I'll, I'll mention about my son. My oldest son went to UVA. Oh, that's great. Love you, VA. And of course, biomedical engineering. He went to fly helicopters in the U.S. Navy for 10 years. Wow. Yeah. And and then he went got his MBA at Northwestern and then now works in the life sciences business out in California. Oh, so congratulations. Sounds like wonderful. Well, he's married and I'm knock on, yeah. knock on marble. Hopefully we'll yeah. have grandchildren eventually. My younger son is the, I went to Princeton and got oh, that's great. Swam, swam there on the swim team. Oh, that's fantastic. Four straight Ivy League championships. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> and then has a young lady that he's met at work, and they've been together seven years now. And oh, that's great. No, no family yet. There. How old is he? He's thirty-two, yeah. and he. Uh, they bought a house in upstate New York. They're up in Ancrum Dale, New York, a little small town, and. Columbia County and the Hudson Valley. It's a beautiful spot. Two acres of land. And anyway. Good. It's that sounds wonderful. Kind of cool to see that. Very so cool. Anyway, Congratulations. Thank you, sir. So, final question. Oh, final question. If you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say, Art? Your legacy here. Okay, here's what I think. Here's what it would say. Take a deep breath. Look around. Count your blessings, and smile. Life's short. That's awesome. Thank you, Art. My Very pleasure. Much. Thank you for doing this. It's been a great conversation. You're, you're, thank thank you. you so much, and thank you everybody for listening. So we just listened to uh, a phenomenal discussion with Art Pusillo. The uh, head of development at Learner Enterprises, who's led the development team there for many, many years, although he did say that he only focused primarily on retail and zoning, and that Mark Lerner focused most more on the office building and the apartment side of the business. But, but Art has been the face of Learner Enterprises for so many years, as he talks about with Ted Lerner being 
somewhat of a quiet, more humble, step back kind of guy, you know, except for the baseball team, of course. But anyway, the art's been the face of the company for so many years, and he's quite a character. And it was quite a conversation. So as I usually do, I'm bringing on a uh, postscript guest. And once again, it's Ramiz Munawar. Ramiz, welcome. Thank you for joining me again. Thanks for having me. So Ramiz, tell me what you thought about our conversation with my conversation with Art Fusillo. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed listening to the conversation. And what I really appreciate about it is that it covered a really long time span with one company, right? Going back to a time period when they were doing land deals in Loudoun County and drawing up the roads for the county in a meeting and everything was kind of just done right there on site, you know, all the way to the 2000s where they brought an MLB team to Washington and started building stadiums. So I think following the, the breadth and depth of his career was just fascinating. And that, that's a great segue into my three key takeaways for this episode. You know, the first of which is, you know, it's, it's one of the lessons that he shared towards the end, which is to be patient. Careers are long, and it used to be that a lot would change year after year. But now it feels like things change by the month. <clears throat> and so you just never really know what's going to happen in the market over the long term. And sometimes the best advice is just to, to hold assets and see what happens. So that's my first key takeaway is to be patient. The second one, is that in order to have success over a long period of time in real estate, you have to be a lifelong learner. Education is, is constant, you know, and whether that's, that's reading something or whether that's networking, understanding trends and being able to spot them, it leads to a lot of opportunities for growth and it helps to avoid the, the mistakes that others will make. So I think the, the, the diversification away from the traditional mall, <coughs> excuse me, the diversification away from the traditional shopping mall for a learner, it seems like it sort of happened well before e-commerce really began to gain in market share. And they did that because they were able to spot the trend because they had the foresight to be able to do that. So I think education and constantly learning about what's out there and what's, what's brewing is important in order to be able to react to the things that are going on. And my third takeaway is understanding the importance of diversifying your career. Art started off as a construction litigator, then he got into the development side of the business. And at that point, Lerner was really focused on regional malls, and he was you know, really focused on the contract side of things. But then eventually, he branched out into you know, urban planning, architecture, construction, leasing, financing. And as all of that was happening, the product also diversified into office buildings, smaller you know, neighborhood shopping centers, stadiums, you know, hospitality, and so on. So that, that experience of diversification really equipped him to deal with all sorts of challenges. And that's one of the reasons I really enjoy working at Jamestown is because we have a lot of exposure to so many different elements in our industry. And that's just a huge plus for your career to be able to touch so many different projects, so many different markets. So I think that's been a huge plus. And just and, and overall, I, I really appreciate his talk about his family background in the oil business and what that really indicated to me is is the importance of being hands-on. He would spend, you know, days cleaning oil tanks and just be covered in rust and soot. So, you know, hard work throughout the early part of his career really molded him into the person he became. And I think that just really supported, you know, his, his work at Learner. So I think there was a lot to take from this episode, and I really enjoyed listening to the story. What were your thoughts on it? 
Well, thank you, Ramiz. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think your your first point of patience, he talks obviously considerably about in the looking at what to do today <laughs> and made with major parcels that they now have, which at one time were thriving regional malls mm-hmm. that now have to be re- rethought. And in both cases, they tore down the existing centers. They were ahead of the game there, as you you said they were understood by, you know, making decisions early on that they had to reconsider a complete new project, which is is true. And so they had the ability to tear something down and master plan it on a vacant site, just basically starting from scratch. Not many mall developers have that capability to do that. Just tear it down and, and just wait until the right opportunity comes along to redevelop it. Um, it's, uh, I think it's a testimony to the, the family's, uh, diversification in their, in their development and their real estate investments, as well as, you know, prescient thinking by Mr. Lerner, who obviously Art had tremendous admiration and respect for. I mean, we're going to post a, his, the eulogy, which I think I shared with you. That he had about Mr. about Ted Lerner, which is quite something. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, Art brought you know his hard hard working hands on mentality, which obviously Ted Lerner appreciated in hiring him to come on board. But Art also had a passion for understanding the legal aspects, getting both not only a JD but a master's in tax law understand partnerships and everything else. So Art is, you know, coming from the background he had, he obviously had significant intellect, which he says he told that his mother gave him to to learn the legal side of things and wanted to be a lawyer as early as nine years old. Working in the oil business is an interesting, you know, how he came up with that. He never really said per se, but he always wanted to be in law. So I thought that was fascinating. Maybe, I don't know, television or something inspired him. But but then, you know, he pivoted, as you said. He, he adapted to the business. He learned, you know, he wanted to do something with balls. So he took his legal background and learned as much as he could and then learned all the other things. And just this lifelong learning aspect that you also suggested in your takeaways, I thought was very interesting. And he talked about that considerably. And he's obviously very proud of his children doing the same thing at all the colleges that they've attended. And so he's passed that on to them. I just, you know, and and he's a larger than life kind of guy. (laughs) I mean, I've met him several times and he doesn't hesitate to go speak and advocate for the company and for others. And as I said to him many times, I said, Art, you could have had your own company. He said, yes, I could have. There's probably true. But I learned from, from the master. And the latitude I was given uh, here at Learner Enterprises to do what I wanted to do and was capable of doing and having the opportunity to work on the projects I was able to work, he said, I couldn't have done that myself. I'm almost certain. He said, this was a tremendous opportunity, and I was given the total freedom to do what I wanted to do, which is 
somewhat unique, he said, he thinks. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Other thoughts, Ramiz? Yeah, you know, I, as I was listening to him talk about the transition from regional malls to neighborhood shopping centers and how that format has been the most um, or one of the most stable types of retail that there is, I kept thinking about the parallels with Federal Realty and oh, how, yeah. They, yeah, how their success has been underpinned on the same product. And just as I was thinking about that, you had brought up Federal in the conversation. And I thought that was just a great connection point between two companies that have the same area of focus in retail and both understood the trends that are going on in retail, you know, before sort of the rest of the public or the rest of the market understood it. And both companies were able to adapt to a format that allowed for the company to continue to grow while still owning these large retail shopping centers, open-air malls, closed mall, closed-air malls, and other products. But both have sort of found their own niche, and it's, it's great to see that they still have um, faith in retail and where it's going, but just in a very different way. And just I, I just think the overall conversation about that and the connection between the two is interesting. Well, I agree. I mean, you know, how federal evolved was, you know, in, in some ways a little different than obviously Learner Enterprises because the, the companies are totally different as far as ownership structure and responsibility mm-hmm. to ownership. So Learner is, 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 is Art said is it on the 200-year plan uh, for for a long time, <laughs> and have the 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 latitude because they were run by a family to do things that a public company could just never do, take tremendous land risk. However, Steve Gutman, who was the pre the, the prior chairman prior to Don Wood, did take tremendous land risk, and it almost took the company down. Mm-hmm. With you know Santana Row and some of the things that they did, and Don is more of a steward, but he does appreciate creativity and imagination and and development to see mm-hmm. oversee the Pike and Rose project, which really started under his watch. So, and 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 Art really appreciated that, and he 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 cited that he thought that was a spectacular project. And he said it, it may change his history, basically. Mm-hmm. He thinks that's mm-hmm. a really important aspect of real estate development, which I've always admired uh, myself. I mean, it's one of the reasons I'm in the industry. I just really like the whole concept of taking a piece of raw land and turning it into something that's very special and creates value for its users and all the people working on the project itself. And then the eventual end users, either the tenants or even people appreciating the architecture from a, from afar, not even using the building, but appreciating that when they walk by it or seeing it. Mm-hmm. And I've said this before, I think real estate development is, is, is a, an art. And so what do you, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I think I agree. I mean, I, I grew up, you know, building buildings and using Lego sets. And I, I just remember growing up as a kid, we would go to Baltimore and New York and other cities and look at these construction sites. I was always fascinated in how things came together, right? Like how do, how do contractors know what goes first and what goes next and what comes after that? And just the, the, the complication and the sophistication of construction always fascinated me. And then that led me into thinking about, you know, how buildings were designed and put together and, you know, how do architects know, you know, 
how, how different things will fit together and what types of materials to use and things like that. And so I was fascinated with architecture at a very young age and then began to build actual models when I was in high school and started to, you know, chop up plywood and, you know, learn how to use power tools and, you know, find the right, the right type of plexiglass to play into my models. And so high school is really where I began to build a physical product of architecture. And I think the combination of, of architecture, construction, a little bit of economics. And, and so when you pair all of that together, that's really where you get to, to real estate. And that's what has fascinated me about the industry is, is very similar. It's, it's the ability to take something that doesn't exist today, put, put some knowledge and some education behind it and really create a product that is fascinating uh, and experiential. So that, that's kind of the draw that's been there for me in real estate. And, you know, it's, it's been almost 10 years now in the career. And uh, I'm fortunate to say I've had a lot of great experiences working on so many creative projects across the country and really across the region. So, so that's kind of where my interest dawned up. That's great. Yeah. So any other takeaways? I mean, you, you gave us three pretty good ones. Anything else about art that you found kind of intriguing that you thought was unique or different about yeah, I think our that, conversation? Yeah, there, there was a very interesting part of the interview. And this is something I'm, I'm just really fascinated by as I think about history. And, and it's the part where he was talking about the meeting in Loudoun County where they drew up the major streets in the county up on a map. And, and that was kind of it, right? Like you're, you're in that meeting and you, you put lines on the map and that's just the way the, the growth of the county is going to be um, sort of designed around for the next you know 50 years or whatever. And then he talked about the entitlement process and how it used to be a much simpler and less expensive process, whereas now there's roles for just about everything. And, and then lastly, how economics have changed. You know, Excel wasn't around back then. Computers weren't really around back then. The way you looked at an investment was just very different. It was more back than napkin. And you don't just, you know, nowadays you don't just buy to hold anymore because land is more scarce. You have to have a plan for it with all sorts of complicated Excel models and you have to get the architects involved at a much earlier phase. So it seems like things have just become much more intensive because of regulations and just where the market is. So I think hearing him about hearing from him about how things used to be and how things were structured and what the approach was is just interesting to think about that was only 40 or 50 years ago and how much things have changed since then. So what are some of your sort of memories from that time period and how has that changed to to today? Well, I moved here in 1985 um, from Chicago. And, you know, the first few years, first five years I was here, I was just overwhelmed by the amount of growth and activity in the Northern Virginia, particularly, but, you know, throughout the region, but the activity over there was just amazing. And to me, Loudoun County itself, Virginia is a, is a, a case study of, you know, the evolution of real estate development over the last 50 years, probably. I mean, it was raw land. 90% of it was raw, you know, was farmland probably, let's say, the late 1970s. Then suddenly, land development just took over. And there was so many different development companies that were active out there. And he mentioned the Bill Bryant map. Mm-hmm. Bill Bryant was the, was the land broker in that town. So when I moved here, his name was very famous. 
as, you know, the guy that was basically assembling the county. Uh, all the the county, and I don't know all the exact history of it, although one of my previous podcast guests, a guy named David Feldman, was an attorney, and he was out there in Reston way back in the 1960s when when Reston was being formed as well. And he said Loudoun County was really the Wild West. That things were just, you know, unfolding. And they knew that the, with Dulles Airport there, the opportunity to grow the tech side of the industry, telecom and all the you know, technology aspects. The Internet was actually formed in the 1940s by the Defense Department, but it was a Northern Virginia thing because of the Pentagon being there. But the infrastructure started, as, as Art said, in the Bomeed site that they bought. And they didn't know it at the time, but it was that's where it was. And, of course, look at all the data center growth out there uh, around the, the backbone of the Internet next to Dulles Airport. So that was really the foundation of the technology growth out there. And then, of course, it's just exploded residentially and, and commercially. And his regional mall, of course, which he spent all the time. He's 13 years, he said, from the time he saw, first saw the site in, I think he said 1980, was it mm-hmm. 1976? I, I can't remember exactly the dates, but yeah. uh, 13 years from the time he first saw the site to the time he, it delivered. So he saw the whole history, basically, of that exponential growth of activity in the county there. So it was fascinating. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was, it was a Bill Gates quote, I think. And he had said, people here and underestimate what they can do in 10. And what that says to me is that over time, things really do change in significant ways. The, the market that we're in right now is a great example of that. And in 10 years, it's going to look completely different than it does now. So I think it's, you know, I'm not quite at that age, but I think it's going to be fascinating to see how quickly things change because they've changed so much over the last 40 years. The next 40 are going to be even more rapid. Yeah, I mean, you know, like the regional mall business, there are some aspects of today's real estate environment that are going to be, that are just going to become dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. It's completely disappear. Mm-hmm. You don't know what today, what it will be. You can anticipate based on initial trends. I mean, I was laid off in 1982 by Hallmark Development Company, a regional law developer. Right then and there, the reason that happened was the economics of regional malls became different at that point. You couldn't do what you wanted to do. It changed. And that, even though uh, art built you know, Dulles Town Center in the late 80s and early 90s, the economics of the industry were changing. That was, you had to be in really strong growth markets to develop a new mall. Now you couldn't, I don't care how fast the growth is, a mall would never work today because of the evolution of other things. And he talked about that. So, you know, it's change is rapid. And you're right. I think that over the next 40 years, you're going to see Things that we never could imagine, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. would happen. So, for instance, you know, downtown office buildings may completely disappear. You know, it may become little mod. You won't have a CBD anymore. 
in some markets. It'll, only a few cities will have them. Mm-hmm. Just like, you know, Tyson's Corner Shopping Center will probably stay as a regional mall for a long period of time because it's a unique con- c- combination of things. Yeah. Uh, but will downtown Washington stay all 100% office over the next 40 years? I kind of think not. I think it's yeah. going to change dramatically. Yeah. So, you know, what are the trends? Who knows? But as you suggested by this conversation, stay alert. And what Art said, you know, look over the horizon, stay alive, stay mm-hmm. educated, understand what's going on, and be patient. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> those yeah. are the things that you. Uh, if you uh, go ahead. Yeah. I, I always think about you know if I was thirty five years old in nineteen ninety five, how would I have reacted to the internet or e commerce? Right? <laughs> would I have been as dismissive as some people are about crypto and AI today? You know, I, I don't know, but it's possible, right? So when I when I think about the reaction to those two things back then. I also think that what some people might consider a non-threatened real estate, by the time they realize how important it is, there's going to be someone younger who can do their job cheaper or better. And the next thing you know, you're out of a job. So I think it's important to stay ahead of what's going on and at least understand how it impacts real estate um, because things are going to change so much in the next 40 years and the job market will change with that. Yeah, well, think about the top five companies on the um the S&P or right now. So Apple, Apple was formed in 1976 by Steve Jobs and uh, Microsoft was formed in what, 1978 by Bill mm-hmm. Gates. Apple or Amazon was created in 1997 by Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that wasn't that long ago, you know, yeah. less than 40 years in each case, those three cases. So it's, you know, there are companies being formed today that will dominate the industry 40 years from now, probably. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's going to be interesting to watch how that affects real estate. It'll be interesting also. So with that, unless we have, you have anything else to say, I think we're pretty much set. What do you think, Ramiz? Yeah, I'm good. Rick. Really appreciate the opportunity to be involved in this one. Thank you. So listeners, thank you for joining us today. And this it was one of my favorite conversations because of just the, the energy and, and enthusiasm of, of Art and his, his high respect for Ted Lerner, his mentor, and one of the great icons of our industry, who I obviously didn't have a chance to interview, but he's, you know, he was a quiet guy and probably wouldn't have accepted my invitation, but to have Art reflect on it and being so close to him for over 40 years was really a good opportunity to to share. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation and please join me for our next interview, which will probably come within the next two weeks. Thank you for joining me.